Good morning. Uh, this meeting will come to order. Welcome to the September 21st, 2023 regular meeting of the Government Audit and Oversight Committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. I'm Supervisor Dean Preston, Chair of the Committee, joined by Vice Chair Catherine Stephanie and Supervisor Connie Chan. The Committee Clerk today is Stephanie Cabrera, and our thanks uh, to SFGovTV for staffing this meeting. Madam Clerk, any announcements? Yes, the Board of Supervisors and its committees are convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment, while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. The Board recognizes that equitable public access is essential and will be taking public comment as follows. First, public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first, then we will take those who are waiting on the telephone line. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak and those on the telephone should dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. If you are on your telephone, please remember to turn down all listening devices that you may be using. Alternatively, you may submit written public comment by email to me, the government audit and oversight clerk, Stephanie Cabrera at stephanie.cabrera at sfgov.org. You may also send your written comments via US Postal Service to our office in City Hall at 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. If you submit public comment in writing, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and included as part of the official file. Finally, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda of October 3rd, 2023, unless otherwise stated. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Please call item one. Item number one is a hearing to discuss the city's comprehensive plan to address car break-ins and requesting the mayor's office, police department, office of the district attorney, office of economic and workforce development, municipal transportation agency, and department of emergency management to report. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call the call-in number scrolling across your screen. When prompted, enter the meeting ID, then press pound twice. If you have not done so already, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait for the system to indicate that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, and uh, before we hear uh, from departments, wanted to make some uh, initial remarks. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this hearing. Um, and I called for this hearing um, to give members of the public an opportunity to hear from city officials about an issue that has long affected our city, um, and that is car break-ins. Um, and I think we all know that year after year, residents and visitors to our neighborhoods are victimized by car break-ins. And despite various uh, announcements and efforts uh, regarding new initiatives to combat the issue, um, the city has made no noticeable progress. Doesn't mean there's been no progress, but, but you don't see the results in terms of uh, a reduction in car break-ins. And, and folks are understandably frustrated uh, and visitors to our city are not only losing money and property, but often left uh, traumatized and, and with a very bad uh, experience in our city. And I should say it's not limited to tourists, but is certainly disproportionately uh, visitors. Um, I think it's time to let the public know what the city's been doing, uh, to, take, to have an honest conversation on what's been working, what hasn't been working, and, and what can be done collaboratively uh, to uh, reduce car break-ins in San Francisco. Um, 
you know, I represent District 5, which has several of the hot spots for break-ins, including the Haight-Ashbury, uh, Japantown, and Alamo Square. Um, since I took office, my uh, office has raised this issue and explored potential solutions and gotten updates uh, with multiple departments um, and discussed potential programs to mitigate the harms that car break-ins cause. Um, but we we haven't seen uh, the significant change. Uh, I think given the, even though it's quite pronounced in my district, it's also impacting other districts, including my colleagues on this committee. Um, and really given the widespread nature of this issue, I think it's really most beneficial for us to discuss our strategy in terms of citywide um, uh, focus, uh, not necessarily on particular districts, although I think we all recognize there are, and we'll hear more about some of the the areas where the problem's the worst. Um, in preparation for today, my office uh, did extensive research on this topic, reviewed years of announcements regarding car break-ins, reviewed in detail the 2015-2016 civil grand jury report that explored this issue, um, and requested uh, that the departments that the clerk just read uh, send representatives and, and discuss and meet with us on this issue. Um, over the past two months, we requested data and meetings with each of the departments to discuss current and past strategies as well as explore future possibilities. Um, and I'm grateful to the departments uh, that accommodated our requests um, and spent significant time with our office uh, to, to try to tackle this problem and make sure uh, we're all on the same page as to what efforts have been undertaken and what's been working and not. Um, we also engaged with car rental companies, uh, travel industry representatives, constituents, merchants, com uh, community benefit districts, uh, and particularly from some of the most impacted areas in our district, um, and Good Samaritans, uh, who I want to note, uh, there are many out there uh, who every day are assisting people who are victims of having their cars, uh, car windows smashed and their possessions stolen. Uh, and a lot of these folks uh, go unnoticed and are showing uh, quite a bit of kindness to strangers who've been uh, victimized, particularly those uh, who are visiting our city. Um, in all these discussions, we've found that nearly uh, everyone is eager to engage on this issue. Um, and I think, you know, it's my hope we have an opportunity to harness that spirit of collaboration for, for good and to make progress here. Um, in that spirit, last week, after, as I said, almost two months of the meetings and research, we sent each of the departments I've mentioned uh, a memo with some ideas and suggestions for some of the things we can do to, to supplement, uh, particularly our prevention efforts. Uh, looking forward to discussing some of those ideas um, in more detail after we hear about the city's uh, past and, and current approaches. I also want to recognize that after we called for this hearing, uh, that SFPD, along with uh, district attorney, announced the start of a bait car program, and we're looking forward to hearing more about that program today and appreciate the information we've gotten uh, in our briefings from SFPD on that. Um, I also want to emphasize that, um, in my opinion, the path to reducing car break-ins cannot rely on any one strategy to the exclusion of others. Everyone we have spoken about with this um, in, in all of the departments that I have mentioned um, are in agreement that we need effective solutions on all fronts 
to finally get this problem in our city uh, under control. I also want to make this clear. Uh, this hearing is not just about um, stopping the next viral video, uh, which of course will get a lot of attention, uh, but it's really not the focus here. You know, there were over 22,000 break-ins to vehicles reported to SFPD last year. And that figure, I, I think everyone would agree, it likely understates the extent of the problem as many break-ins uh, go unreported. And this is, in addition to just the direct impact on victims, this is a tremendous number of calls for service. Um, and we should not accept this number as inevitable or in any way just throw up our hands. Uh, and, I, and I don't think anyone wants us to, to do that. Uh, car break-ins affect, as I mentioned, not only the immediate victims, uh, but also make everyone in the area and in the neighborhood feel less safe, uh, impact San Francisco's reputation uh, and the likelihood of people visiting our city, um, and consume a tremendous amount of city resources, SFPD and beyond, uh, to respond to break-ins, take the police reports, clear glass from our streets and sidewalks, and return items to victims when they're recovered in addition to uh, cases that are, that, uh, where an arrest is made and are prosecuted that then uh, consume prosecutorial resources. Um, from our ex extensive interviews and research, I, I will say that I am disappointed by the current lack of a coordinated response. I, I think that folks are in all these departments working on this issue, um, but there's a lack of coordinated response, and I think that has prevented us uh, from making more progress um, and prevented us even from having a shared understanding across departments of what strategies are being deployed, what data we have, uh, and how we are measuring success and holding ourselves accountable when it comes to this longstanding problem. Um, I want to emphasize our purpose uh, is not to place blame for the past, but to figure out how to move forward in a more effective and transparent manner. Um, as part of that transparency, I've asked SFPD to present on the data, uh, its strategies, and uh, the ParkSmart campaign, which had its origins with SFPD. Uh, we've also asked representatives from SFMTA, uh, and OEWD who are here, who are not planning a presentation, but will be available for questions uh, from the, the committee. Um, I wanna note that despite our request that they do so, uh, Rec Park and, and District Attorney's Office did not send representatives, which is disappointing. Uh, we hope today's hearing is not the end of this conversation and that these departments uh, will make an effort to engage on this issue uh, in the future. We did receive uh, earlier this week some written responses uh, from the district attorney's office, so I do want to uh, acknowledge that. Um, tackling an issue of this magnitude will absolutely require collaboration and uh, communication going forward. So without further ado, um, and, and unless colleagues wanted to uh, say anything before 
the presentation. Um, I want to uh, thank and welcome all the department representatives here today, uh, including uh, Commander uh, Derek Jackson from the San Francisco Police Department, um, and as I mentioned, some others who are here uh, available for questions, including Chris Corgus, Deputy Director of Community uh, Economic Development at OEWD, uh, and Rob Malone, Senior Manager for Parking and Curb Management at SF. MTA, as well as uh, I believe Ted Graff, uh, Director of Parking for uh, Curb Management and Operations, uh, is also joining us uh, remotely, I believe, today. So, uh, Commander Jackson, without further ado, the floor is yours. Welcome, um, and to you and your team. Looking forward to your presentation. Good morning, uh, Supervisor Preston, uh, Supervisors. Um, Again, my name is Commander Derek Jackson from the San Francisco Field Operations, Operations Division, Metro. With me this morning is Lieutenant Stephen Jonas, also from Field Operations, and Legislative Liaison Rima Malouf. So this morning, uh, what we have is a presentation uh, which represents data and strategies, uh, overview of our citywide auto burglary um, statistics, and some of our strategies for um, addressing some of these issues. So I'll go ahead and start with the uh, first slide. So I'm here on behalf of Chief Scott. Chief Scott said that, quote, I am disturbed every time I see these crimes on social media or the local news. Auto break-ins are devastating to the residents and visitors who should be having a joyous experience in San Francisco rather than the nightmare of losing their valuable personal belongings. So next slide represents our Park Smart leaflets and pamphlets. And uh, just to give you a little background on that. So Chief Scott, the department in 2017 began implementing strategies to address the high number of break-ins identified beginning in 2017. This included working with various city departments on Park Smart. Individual police stations implemented strategies at the level identifying areas within their districts uh, where extra patrols would be beneficial. The data that was analyzed showed a decline of the break-ins during this time period. The most notable de decrease in break-ins was during the COVID pandemic years. There, that represented a sharp decline as the city actually returned to normal um, operations within the city and county of San Francisco. After 2020, um, break-ins did begin to increase. The actual Park Smart program was actively started in 2014 by then Captain Dave Lazar, who was the uh, commanding officer at Central Station. That began with a collaborative effort with uh, then acting, excuse me, then Captain Lazar's uh, Community Police Advisory Board. Again, in 2017, SFMTA also borrowed the uh, material that, which was, that was represented on the pamphlets and leaflets and began that as part of their advertisement campaign. I personally am familiar with the ParkSmart campaign as a former captain at Northern Station, and what I did was allow and, and actually direct my officers to take those pamphlets with them while they were in patrol in some of the most impacted areas. So the next slide represents basically what we all know. 
If you love it, don't leave it. Car break-ins are an unfortunate reality in San Francisco, and the campaign is please do not leave any belongings in your vehicle. So the next slide represents citywide auto burglary data year-to-year -year comparison. Looking at the year-to-year -year comparisons beginning in 2017 and measuring out into 2020, if you look at the, the graph that we have before us, you will notice that between the dates of 2021 and 2022, there was only an 8% uptick. However, if we look at the overall graph between the dates and the years of 2017 and 2022, there was a 28% uh, decline. If we look at the next slide, the graph represents citywide auto burglary data, January 1 to September 2017. So for the first nine months looking at this graph, it's clear that the numbers represent increased uh, downward trends. So 2020 again represents the height of the pandemic where the auto break-ins were at their lowest point. So the question is, knowing that for the first six months of those years, there was an obvious decline, what represented the uptick after that six month period? The next slide represents auto burglaries, and what they represent is the key impacted areas. So if we look at the bullet points here, Company A, which represents Central Station, indicated the highest number of auto break-ins, according to the map here, at 2005. The next impacted area, Company E, which, which represents Northern, the areas that were most impacted were Alamo Square, Palace of Fine Arts, and Japantown. If we look at the next bullet point, Company F, which is Park Station, the most impacted areas were Twin Peaks, the H Street Corridor. In uh, Company G, which represents the Richmond District, the most impacted areas were Golden Gate Park, the Legion of Honor, and last, uh, Company I, which represents the Terraville District, the most impacted areas were the Stonestown uh, Galleria. Also keeping in mind that um, any and all parking lots and structures were also impacted by auto burglaries. So the next slide represents what we are doing to help mitigate some of these auto break-ins. And that represents our citywide plain close operations. So for January through May of 2023, there were 21 successful operations 37 subjects arrested, and 14 firearms recovered. The next slide represents what were some of our most historical strategies. Some of those include increased patrols in high crime tourist areas, increased high visibility with fixed posts, plainclothes units in high crime tourist areas to mitigate some of these auto break-ins. The next slide represents what are some of our current strategies. Some of those include the areas of fixed post and arrest, investigative interventions, surveillance tools, community and city department collaborations to help address and recognize uh, auto break-ins. 
in short, that is uh, some of the uh, data and strategies that we have uh, compiled together for today's hearing. Uh, we are open and available for questions. Thank you, Commander Jackson. Um, I do have some questions, um, and again, some of these things our office has discussed with you, and, and I feel like we've been having these conversations for a while in your prior role as captain of, of Northern Station, certainly tracking the, at a more micro level, uh, the, the monthly, um, in our monthly meetings around the break-ins and the response, um, but appreciate your, your broader role and perspective uh, in, in, in your position now. Um, in terms of the investigations, um, can you give the committee and the public a sense of what your investigations are showing in terms of patterns of, uh, how, you know, how decentralized these break-ins are, how many are involving uh, suspects using stolen vehicles, uh, or any other, any other uh, patterns that your investigations are, are revealing that you can share? Yes, thank you. So some of the patterns that you know we've we've recognized um, some of these include multiple thieves per vehicle. Uh, the criminal uh, element operates predominantly during the daylight hours. You know they also often target tourist areas. Um, Suspects usually use, utilize, you know, counter surveillance and attempts to uh, identify undercover police operations. And following the break-ins, uh, the suspects usually flee at a high rate of speed with disregard for public safety. Uh, those are a, a few of the, the things that we have recognized. Uh, there are often other things that you know, contribute to that and that are just one-off opportunists who are operating within, you know, 24 hours. So not necessarily an organized uh, crew, crew, but often, you know, just your one-off, you know, your, your, your persons who aren't really associated with any uh, group that is targeting, you know, our vehicles in our, in our most, you know, impacted areas. And I also have with me um, Lieutenant Stephen Jonas here, who is um, the... Uh, Lieutenant in charge of our, our plainclothes operations. So he may be able to offer some other perspective on what we're doing as far as our strategies. Lieutenant Jonas. Thank you. I know there'll be a public comment period after. Good morning, supervisors. Um, so uh, in terms of trends that we see, I think Commander Jackson highlighted a lot of them. Um, we do see uh, suspects um, using both stolen cars uh, and cars that are not reported stolen. Um, we do see a lot of uh, attempts to evade detection through switching out license plates, uh, having heavily tinted windows, uh, things like that. Um, as Commander Jackson said, the suspects are frequently working the, together in uh, groups. Um, and what we find uh, anecdotally is that uh, these groups are responsible for a high number of the burglaries that we uh, that we encounter um, in terms of strategies that we're using um, 
the plainclothes teams at the stations are heavily engaged with the community. They have a lot of direct community contacts with folks, uh, either residents or businesses, um, and the officers have provided their contact information to kind of cut out the middleman as far as dispatch goes so that they know immediately when suspects are in the area, they get a good description and also have good contacts to obtain surveillance video and things like that uh, when it comes to investigations. Um, we work closely with the Investigations Bureau. We also work closely with uh, other allied law enforcement agencies to share information. Um, and the last thing that I wanna say is that uh, our plainclothes teams are really uh, actively innovating on a daily basis with technology that can be better employed to both investigate these crimes and to apprehend the suspects after they've committed the crimes. Thank you. On one issue around the, I know anecdotally and on individual cases, we hear that stolen cars are often used by the suspects. Is there any data around just what percent or any estimate as to, to how frequent that is? And part of why I ask is, I mean, there are some strategies that have been suggested and, and maybe you can comment on them on like license readers and other uh, things that may flag a stolen vehicle. Um, and I'm curious, uh, you know, to what extent um, those kind of efforts at addressing the vehicle that's been stolen before it's uh, engaged in the auto burglaries, uh, the, the smash and grabs. Um, could be productive, but it, but any data around like how often these these involve uh, stolen vehicles? I don't have data around how often the cars are okay. stolen, but it is something that we're seeing on an increasing basis. I would say that the cars that are involved are stolen vehicles, whether they're stolen from rental car companies or stolen from private uh, parties. Um, that is uh, something that I see is on the rise, um, and. Again, the plainclothes officers are working actively with car manufacturers and rental companies uh, to address that. Uh, just yesterday, one of our officers uh, put, put out some great information to the entire department about how we can try to interdict some of these cars before they're even used in the auto burglaries. Thank you. Um, one tactic that um, has gotten some press is and and that I know is a newer uh, tactic for uh, for SFPD is the, the use of bait cars, which I mentioned previously. Um, can you um, elaborate on um, the the target of the bait car operations and whether my understanding is those are to target the folks who are breaking in directly as distinct from there have been past bait car efforts that got a lot of attention from the prior district attorney that I think were more designed to go up the food chain uh, and get the, the uh, and target the, the moment of fencing. And so, but, but I don't wanna speak for the department. I think we've talked about that a bit privately, but can you, can you just talk a little more about the, to the extent to which you can share what the, you know, whether that's accurate, whether the target of this current bait car operation is primarily uh, the street level perpetrator or whether this is a tactic to go higher up the food chain. At this point, in my opinion and my understanding, it is a, a tool to target the auto break-in um, component. 
And, you know, we're without divulging any, any more information other than what we, we can right now for, you know, officer safety and, and just to maintain the integrity of our operations. It, it is, in fact, being deployed and it is being deployed in, in those areas to, to help mitigate some of the activity that is going on. Thank you. And when did this, uh, the new bait car program launch? It, it, yeah. it did um, roll out um, immediately after Chief Scott's uh, uh, press conference. So it, it did uh, get approved and, and it did go into uh, operation during that time. So August? If, if that's correct, yes, yeah. August. Okay. Thank you. And, and then in terms of, you know, one of the other things that got quite a bit of media attention that we were eager to look into were there were, um, there was the anti-fencing rewards program that was launched or announced by the mayor, SFPD, and others in 2021. Um, our understanding that is that no rewards were paid out on that program to date. Is that accurate? I personally don't have any information on that. I don't know if Lieutenant Jonas has anything. Uh, we don't have anything at this time, Supervisor. However, I'm happy to follow up with you after this hearing, and, and maybe we can um, get some clear understanding of what was paid out or what wasn't and where we are with that program. Thanks. And, and I don't know if that would be more... I, I'm happy to get that from you. We also, in the letter from the district attorney, I think was confirmed, at least from their perspective, that there, there hadn't been anything paid out. And my understanding of that program, talked with some of the folks involved in, in setting it up, outside City Hall was that there were funds that were pledged by third parties as rewards if they would be useful uh, for SFPD and the DA, but that, that nothing's been, been paid out. Um, if, but anyway, if there's, if there's info to the contrary, uh, let me know, but I, I think that's my understanding of the state of, of that program. Um, the, and, and it, leads me to question just around effectiveness of various strategies as they are rolled out. I mean, one of the things that we were trying to do in this hearing was look at, there's been lots of announcements of different things, and look, sometimes the announcement alone can be helpful in, in deterrence and in other strategies, um, but it's also, I think, important to circle back and look at what's working, what isn't. Um, I'm curious how SFPD evaluates the effectiveness of a strategy. So like you're launching the bait cars, a certain point down the road, I assume you'll assess how they're working. What, how, what, what are the metrics for figuring out whether it's working or not? Is it the overall, is it the number of arrests, prosecutions? Is it the overall number of auto burglaries occurring? some combination, other factors, how do we assess uh, and when do we assess the effectiveness of strategies that roll out? You know, in my opinion, I think the, uh, the numbers on the slide represent the effectiveness, you know, the number of arrests, uh, the number of, of, of firearms seized, uh, things like that, that kind of um, represents the effectiveness. And, and I, I believe after each of these operations, uh, the units do sit down and debrief to determine if uh, the strategy that they used worked well. Uh, we measure that, and, and then based on what we find, uh, we re-employ that technique, if that answers your, your question effectively. 
Thank you. Um, I, I have some other questions, but I see my colleagues do too. So Vice Chair Stephanie. Thank you, Chair Preston, and good to see you, Commander. I loved working with you when you were the captain of Northern Station. So, thank you, Supervisor. Um, thank you for working on this. Um, I, I think what hasn't been said yet is um, the fact that we are, what, 600 police officers short, and I'm looking at this map of the, um, sat you know, the saturation of where these break-ins are um, taking place, and obviously if we had enough officers to just deploy to this area 24-7, I think that these statistics would be a lot different. So for me, I would really like to know how the shortage of officers is impacting our ability to really get these numbers down. Yes, uh, thank you, Supervisor. And, and before I, I, I answer that question, uh, uh, something just came to mind, Supervisor Preston, when we um, talk about what the effectiveness is. And one thing that came to mind was, you know, on many of these cases and, and in my experience and just being at field operations, uh, the effectiveness is, is evidenced by when we do successfully make these arrests and we do successfully recover the stolen items and we do get those items returned to the victims, you know, that really does represent our effectiveness. You know, some of the effectiveness also is represented in the arrest without any incidents of use of force and without any injury to public safety uh, of, of the public. Um, Supervisor Stephanie, so answering your question about the um, shortage of officers when it comes to dealing and combating auto break-ins, it, it's definitely a problem when we think about when we need to make deployments you know, and as Lieutenant Jonas stated, that we work with uh, multi-district plainclothes units, you know. Uh, I think the number of plainclothes officers amongst, I'd say, several districts may total 25 to 30, you know, um, and, and that, with these complex investigations, can really hinder how many of these auto break-in crews that we can track, surveil, and take into custody. Uh, you combat that with the patrol force, uh, you know, manning the sectors, you know, having officers being able to respond in a timely fashion to the report of an auto break-in in progress where there are suspect descriptions. So unfortunately, if our officers are unable to break away from other priority calls and we don't have a lot of resources in the field, then yes, that definitely affects the response to getting to the incident that is being called in on an, on an A-priority 911 basis. So yes, the shortage of officers definitely impact the response to these auto break-ins. Thank you. And just, you know, having worked in San Francisco politics since 2007 for two prior District 2 supervisors and now being a supervisor in my second term and working with so many different captains from Northern Station, Richmond, Central, I mean, I just see this as one of the biggest impediments to really getting at this issue is in terms of I understand um, the life of a police officer and how hard it is um, 
in how long it takes to file reports and the DGOs and all of that and how it plays out. And I think that um, we can't talk about this issue without talking about the shortage and what that is doing to um, the rise in break-ins or um, areas that you know don't have coverage. And again, and I want to thank too Chief Scott and everyone for. Um, the attention and the um, press conference we had at the Palace of Fine Arts, which of course is in District 2, and the use of bait cars and doing what you can with the resources you have. I, I am very appreciative of that, but I know until we solve this officer shortage crisis, um, this is going to be uh, very difficult to um, you know, get the numbers down. So I, I see that as a huge issue, and I don't think we could talk about this issue without talking about that. Um, my second question is to um, the arrest page, page eight of the report, in terms of um, the successful operations. And, and we might need follow-up information, I think, from the DE's office, which I can um, ask them if they're not here today or if they don't have this information. In terms of the 37 subjects that were arrested, I would really love to know what happened to those cases, were they filed, um, how many priors did the individuals have that were arrested? Um, what, ha how, uh, what happened? Are, were they held over? Um, were they released uh, on an ankle monitor? Like, what, what happened here at this point? Because you can do all the work up to the arrest, and then if then nothing happens on the back end, um, or there's no consequences for the action, I think it makes it more difficult. Um, you know, we're pouring all these resources into trying to um, catch the individuals that are doing this. I would just, I would love to know um, what happened uh, to these 37 subjects that were arrested and to see whether or not the follow through on that potentially stopped these individuals from doing this over and over again. So if we can get that information, I think that'd be helpful. Very good question, Supervisor. Yes, um, th that is something that, you know, as you know, law enforcement, and being from an investigative background, we think about what happens to the cases after we are presenting them to the district attorney. Uh, furthermore, uh, what other um, agencies or programs are, you know, being utilized to ensure that those who are arrested uh, for auto break-ins aren't reoffending? You know, um, are are we doing something or missing something together as a city? and as, you know, um, um, a criminal justice, you know, partnership to ensure that those who are committing these crimes aren't going back into the same repetitive uh, cycle. So, yes, very good question, and I, I look forward to following up with that. Thank you. And my final question is on the 14 firearms that were recovered. Do we know what type of firearms are these assault rifles? Are these ghost guns? Um, are we able, do we know what type of weapons are involved? On the, on the surface, from um, reading the reports, uh, there are a variety of different types of weapons. Yes, you are receive, are, or we are seizing um, assault weapons, rifles, uh, ghost guns, handguns, uh, multitude of, of different type of firearms. Um, uh, Lieutenant Jonas, did you want to expand on any of that? morning. Um, uh, so regarding the types of firearms that are being seized, I would say it's about 90% uh, handguns. Um, we are seeing, I would say, almost all of them are with uh, extended magazines. Mm -hmm. um, uh, most of them are either ghost guns or are stolen. 
Um, we are seeing about 10% of the firearms that we seize are assault weapons. Um, so uh, very troubling, but uh, one thing I can say is uh, we do see good follow-through from the DA's office uh, on these cases. I don't have statistics for you, I'm sorry, on the 37 arrests by the plainclothes teams. But uh, I do see that the DA's office is filing these cases. Um, there was one case specifically that I was uh, discussing with Commander Jackson yesterday where a suspect was arrested for an auto burglary, a series of auto burglaries that our officers witnessed during a surveillance. Subject was arrested, he had a firearm on his person. Um, he was immediately released on ankle monitor. Um, and during that time, we do believe that he was, went on to commit more burglaries. But when he was rearrested again with another firearm, uh, and then the officers were able through follow-up investigation to charge him with uh, more than half a dozen other burglaries, uh, the DA's office was able to see that that suspect was held in custody. So I know that's only one case, but I think it's a good example of, of getting great uh, cooperation between our agencies. Thank you. And I, I, I do want to say, too, I do have faith that the DA's office is filing these cases. Um, I'm just wondering, too, what happens after that, because sometimes they can file the case and then whatever is how it's adjudicated by the judge in terms of being held over or, you know, there's that also. So thank you for that. Um, and I just think, you know, with the weapons, anecdotally, I know um, on the border of uh, my district and Supervisor Chan's district, I, I think it was maybe two, three months ago, where officers were shot at when they were just trying to apprehend individuals stealing catalytic converters. And it seems to me that these, um, some of these pursuit cases or, um, you know, the weapons that are involved, that they're, they're getting even more dangerous for the officers to respond to. And if you could just speak to that. If I, I mean, that's just what I hear, and I don't know um, if you're finding that to be true in some of the cases. Yes, yes, in some of the cases, uh, these suspects are armed. Uh, the case that you mentioned um, is, is very true. The uh, officers were shot at in a catalytic converter uh, theft incident. Um, the, the officers, the reports that have come in indicate that, you know, um, oftentimes when our officers are out and there's a foot pursuit, there are guns being discarded. You know, these suspects are armed. The incident reports um, that are reported uh, go from auto break-in to robbery based on suspects being armed. So, you know, when the suspects are confronted by, you know, civilians trying to protect their property, uh, many of these suspects will produce firearms and, you know, point them at, at the victims to get them to, to stop their attempts to, you know, intercede the break-in. So, yes, these, these suspects are armed more often than not. Thank you. Nothing further. Thank you, Vice Chair Stephanie. Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Commander Jackson, for being here. And then my question is that noted that for this year, from January to September to date, we have over 15,000 car breaks in uh, according to your presentation and then with a similar time period but really January through May we have 37 arrests or thir 37 individuals arrests arrested um, and so how are these 37 individuals were they for these arrests were they related to the cases that happened in this year or prior years and and how just trying to get a coalition between the arrest 
and the breaks in that actually happened this year. Lieutenant Jonas, can you, can you speak to that, please? Thank you. Um, so just to clarify, these 37 arrests, these are only the arrests by our plainclothes teams on mm -hmm. enforcement operations. There have been more arrests than that department-wide for auto burglary, but this is a, a subset of those arrests. So speaking to this group, these arrests were uh, made as a result of the officers being actively on surveillance operations and looking out for suspects that are breaking into cars. Um, what we find is that these suspects, once they're apprehended, are, as I said before, not responsible for just one burglary, but they're responsible for a whole string of burglaries, both that day and in preceding days, weeks, and months. And our officers do actively work uh, to attempt to connect them to as many cases as they can in an effort not just to close the cases, but to make the most effective case for prosecution. And so out of these 15,000 cases and with these arrests, so it sounds like it's more than 37 arrests uh, for the car breaks in, uh, car break ins. And so with these 15,000 incidents that happened in this year alone, I'm only focusing on this year, and with this 15,000 cases that uh, reported cases, I, I want to say, right, because then there's also things that, that I have heard that they got broken into, the first thing they actually not calling the police, they are calling their insurance, <laughs> um, which understandable, especially if you're from out of town and you just want to get it, get it done. Um, but of course, in the course, then they realize they have to call you too, or they have to call the police and file police report. Um, so out of these 15,000 cases, how many arrests that we, we, we actually have? Uh, I'm sorry, you're asking how many of the 15,000 were cleared by arrest? Sure. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have that statistic for you right now, but just based on my personal experience during surveillance of these suspects, it's, it's my experience that one suspect in, in a day working as part of a group could be responsible for several dozen auto burglaries in one day. So I think any time we take one of these serial auto burglars into custody, even though they, we might only be able to establish probable cause to charge for a relatively small number of burglaries. I think it's very effective in preventing a large number of burglaries by getting them in custody. Sure. And so this is for everyday residents or visitors. I experience car break-ins. What is it that you can help educate us to say to support you in your evidence gathering when an incident like this happened so that we can make sure that you best out of evidence available to you and your officers that you can actually make connection to if it's over a dozen cases for these organized, it sounds to me organized, you know, group of people going around our town and breaking into cars um, and that what, what can we do, what should we do? Uh, in the events that does happen. And even as a supervisor, when I communicate with my merchants and my residents, how can I remind them this is what we ought to do to make sure that you, when you arrive at the scene, that the evidence is preserved for you or however way that it's best for you to investigate? Um, I think first, uh, the thing that I would ask the community to do is what they already do, which is uh, be great witnesses. Please, if you see uh, uh, car break-ins or you see people 
looking into cars in preparation to break in, please look carefully, uh, get, a, get the best description that you can. Please call 911. Uh, if you're able to safely do so, please take a video or photos of the suspects in their car. Um, when officers do respond, please uh, let them know, I have video, I have photos of the suspect, and get those to the officers as quickly as possible. When you call 911, please leave your phone number and then answer your phone if we have to call back. Uh, but we, this, these are things that we already see from the community and we're greatly appreciative. Um, most of these cases are made because we have received video assistance, photo assistance, uh, calls, descriptions from the public at large. So it's a very important partnership. I want to say, though, like we experienced recently a, a, a really uh, just... I wasn't sure what to say to, to the visitor. They're from uh, wedding photographers from Oklahoma, uh, rented their car, as, arrived at SFO. The morning of, they went to Presidio and took some great photos. Then they uh, came to the Richmond uh, on Clement Streets and they were actually eating their sandwiches when the individuals, it happened very fast, according to them. I, I wasn't there. Um, and they just uh, broke into their car knows exactly where things are at, took the, uh, all the, I'm sure you know, the, all the camera equipments are unique, their story is not unique, and, and they just got into their car and left. They were eating their sandwiches, and one of the, it's two photographers, and one of them tried to chase after them, I cannot imagine, uh, and got a shoe, and he's like, I got a shoe, and I was like, I don't know what we're gonna do with the shoe, but I'm glad that you're safe, and, and the officer actually arrived, like, uh, from the Richmond station uh, very quickly and was uh, there and and um, I asked them where were you before they said we were at gas station and I said well okay what well, about the the time before they were at Presidio and taking photos their car very smart people already they're like we heard about this car break-ins in San Francisco so the car that we rental has California license plate which it did uh, and it has tinted window and they cover up their equipment and they were just and they park right in front. They found a spot where they can sit and eat <laughs> in front of their car. So, and yet it still happened in the, you know, just seconds uh, that took place. How can we support, and that was broad daylight, by the way. It was around noontime uh, on a weekday. How can we, and I appreciate all the prevention uh, tactics that we already have. I also appreciate Supervisor Stephanie, my colleague, uh, mentioned about, you know, at the end of the day also is how many uh, people that we could have to work on these cases. Uh, short staff, staffing shortage is real, but as we continue to look at 15,000 cases all around uh, to date, still a lot. Um, you know, I am glad that it's down from previous years, uh, especially comparing to 2017. It seems like we're much better. Um, but what else is it that we can do? Uh, noted that the arrest, uh, hopefully more than 37, um, as you mentioned, with the 21 successful operations, what were the learned lessons from your 21 successful operation that we can scale up those operations and to be able to scale up also, so to speak, in terms of accountability and arrest? Um, so th to answer the first question about what can people do to keep from being victimized, uh, I think the Park Smart campaign uh, has a lot of really 
good advice uh, that's dispensed. And I understand um, that we really should be able to park our car and leave whatever we want to leave in our car while we enjoy our lunch or enjoy the sights. Um, the unfortunate situation that we find ourselves in is that uh, even if we are watching the car, these incidents do happen very quickly. And um, I would caution, uh, caution people to please just any valuables take them with you while you, you're eating lunch, bring them out of the car because uh, even though we cover them up or we put them in the trunk, we do find that sometimes people are seen while they're using their photography equipment and then followed until there's an opportunity to take it. Um, so even common sense steps that we think might protect us, really the best protection is to not leave any valuables in the, in the car. Um, the second part of your question about how to sustain and enhance our successful operations. Uh, we, do, uh, we do run uh, these operations. We, we've really evolved the way that our plainclothes teams operate over the past five or six years. Um, they've gone from teams that really work just within their assigned districts. So each station will have a plainclothes team and the, dis the station from Central might be in one place and the, the, the team from Northern might be in another place and the team from Southern might be in another place. And what we do now is really almost every day that these teams are operating, we are running what used to be a uh, exceptional operation of having everybody working to, to get together and that happens every day now through coordination and cooperation between these teams. They are constantly moving across district boundaries across the entire city to support each other uh, during these extensive investigations and surveillance operations. So that has really uh, continued to grow. And uh, my position actually was created two years ago by then Deputy Chief Lazar uh, to enhance that coordination and cooperation. And um, I think that's really been an effective tool. Um, I think we'll continue to uh, innovate in terms of strategies and technology, like the bait car operations and other, uh, as I said, technology that's either for enhancing our investigations after the fact or for apprehending suspects uh, when we need to, uh, when we've observed a crime. Thank you, Lieutenant Jones. And I, I'm going to tell. It, I'm going to advocate through my district whenever I can. I'm going to. I'm sure I'm going to tell you something that I, you already know. Um, for us in the Richmond is really the Central Heights lands end out there. Um, given that uh, formerly known as Cliff House is going to open very soon, we're very excited about that. We'll love a little bit more uh, love and attention in that area, which is also around Beach Chalet um, and around Fulton side and definitely Legion of Honor. Given that APAC is coming for the visit too, we'll love definitely some love around there as well and day-to-day -day just in enrichment on Clement um, is really our merchants uh, also feeling that and those are typically believe it or not during daylight uh, and just wanted to <laughs> advocate for my district and if you can send some of the people that way and just kind of give us a little love and attention we would really appreciate thank you so much absolutely and I can reassure you that our officers on the plainclothes team are 
daily in your district uh, in those areas in Golden Gate Park, at Land's End, at the Beach Chalet Restaurant, at the Legion. Those are all areas that we have had a lot of success actually uh, catching people committing burglaries. Oh, good. Thank you, Lieutenant Jones, and thank you, Commander Jackson. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. Um, I, I do have uh, some more questions for SFPD before we bring in um, some uh, other departments. And I, and I do just want to echo uh, Lieutenant Jonas's statement, the best protection is not to leave anything in the car. And if there's one message that I think everyone we discuss this issue with in every department working on any aspect of this agrees that it's not the ideal solution as you ex correctly state. We want people to be able to come to San Francisco and not have to worry about this, uh, but that ain't gonna happen overnight. And in the meantime, if, if not only for folks to protect themselves, but also to make San Francisco less of an attractive target for folks traveling into the city, uh, that making sure people just leave nothing in their cars, a lesson that many residents have learned and taken to heart. I've certainly had my car smashed uh, when I've made the mistake of leaving anything, even something of no value, uh, visible. Um, but, uh, but I think most residents, uh, it happens to less frequently because they, they've learned the hard way often uh, not to leave anything in the car. So I, I do want to thank you for, for elevating that. Um, I had some questions on the, the data. There's a pretty big discrepancy, the numbers. I think um, your presentation listed about 15,000 uh, car break-ins a year. Um, as you know, the Chronicle tracks these and draws directly from an SFPD data set that we've consulted that, that is actually over 20,000 a year. Um, so, I'm, I, you know, that's a pretty big, if we're talking about a few dozen difference, I mean, we're talking about a pretty big difference. So I'm wondering if, if that, if there are two different sources here or if there's, um, why that discrepancy might be. Do you have any insight in, into that? Unfortunately, I do not, Supervisor. Like I said, this information came directly from our crime data uh, warehouse reporting uh, system, and it was compiled by our business intellig intelligence uh, tools. So that came directly from our crime analysis unit. So this is what I have to rely on today. But I, I can't speak to any discrepancies between a chronicle uh, report versus my internal report. Yeah, thank you. And, and I think it would be good for us to, to figure out, because it, it'd be one thing if a, a reporter was just getting it wrong or something, but they're drawing directly from a data set they link that's also on the SFGov site. So I think it would be good for, uh, and maybe we can, once we figure that out, update the file for this hearing uh, and make sure we have accurate info. Just, I, I think it's a pretty big difference if it's 15,000 or 22,000. Um, but I appreciate the, the information you have today sounds like, uh, and I don't know if Lieutenant Jonas. Yeah, Lieutenant Jonas may have a question for you as well. I yeah. just wanted, sorry, just to clarify that some of the data that we presented was year to date, so it only represents the first eight and a half months of each year. Um, if you go to page six of our presentation, because we're we're trying to highlight uh, progress including this year, and of course we don't have complete data for 2023, it being only uh, late September. This data is only going up to uh, September uh, 18th of every calendar year. 
Um, and no, then the yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that and understand. And thank you for clarifying that the 2023 is a projection um, right, right, and based the, on data today. What I'm saying is that if you aggregate the numbers, and, and we don't, I mean, we don't have to figure this out here if there's not an easy answer. It's just when you aggregate, aggregate the numbers from the car break and tracker that the Chronicle's got, which links directly to SFGov uh, data, then the annual numbers are significantly higher than this. I think they come out to 22,000. And, and I just want to make sure that, you know, when we're citing it, that it's, that it's accurate numbers. So if you have any insight into, I mean, if these are the accurate numbers of what's reported, great. If there's some kind of mistake and we should alert the Chronicle or, or the other, whoever's managing the other data set, um, it's just a pretty big difference. Yeah. Um, so just the, the previous slide on page five, our 2022 full year numbers do come in right about 22,000. So I don't know if, if there's a disagreement. I see. Not. What's the difference between the, the, the 22,000 on that slide and the next, uh, and the other slide you were showing? So the next slide for 2022 is, is only showing data through mid September. Got it. Oh, thank you so much. You, you are absolutely correct. And I was missing your point. Um, but so, so it's not a, it just, uh, Supervisor Chan, you know, to follow up. So it's, it's not a 15,000 annual. That's, and I appreciate the clarification, Lieutenant. That's looking at the January 1 to September period. Thanks so much. That, that answers my question. Um, and, and so, you know, looking, looking at the data, and I'm glad we're all seeing the same data um, or, or dealing with the same data. I did want to address and follow up on Supervisor Chan's question around the clo case closure rates or the number of arrests made. Um, because the data we've gotten, again, that's through the, the, the Chronicle tracker, which links back to SFPD data, has a 1% to 2% clearance rate. Like in, in, the, in the lower years, it hovers around 1%. In the higher years, it's around 2%. And I wanted to ask, I mean, Supervisor Stephanie talked about the staffing issues, and you've addressed those. But what, that that's a very, strikes me as a very low clearance rate for this kind of crime, even lower than for, for other crimes. So can you, can you elaborate on why that is, why, why, we on, why there's only an arrest? in one to two percent of these cases you know, of, the, yeah. of the reported cases one to two percent of the reported cases i personally don't have any information on that supervisor um as far as the, the case closure or clearance rate i mean we would probably have to bring in some um, manager from the investigations bureau we weren't prepared uh to address that question this morning why the case clearance rate is so low. It may speak again to uh, the case loads, uh, presenting, you know, having enough cases that are sufficiently investigated and presented to the district attorney, you know, with enough evidence to prosecute the cases for closure. I can only give you maybe just a, a a, a snapshot of what I can surmise at this point, but I'm happy to, you know, circle back with you and, and maybe look at that number again and give you a better understanding of the case closure rate and why it may be so low, why it may just present that number versus what the actual numbers are. Thank you. 
And, and I think the other thing that would be helpful is to know if the department has a goal in terms of case closure. Like what, you know, what from, from a investigative point of view, you know, is, is the goal to get that number up, to double it, to, you know, if there are the additional resources or whatever, whatever the barriers are, um, you know, what's, what's the goal on, on Absolutely. That? Or, or I mean, is there one? I mean is, I mean, is there a case, I mean, obviously in an ideal world, you'd say 100%, but I mean, realistically, when, when we're hovering at one to 2% closure rate, is there a, an understanding of trying to reach a different target or metric by a certain time on that? I think each case that is presented um, to the district attorney and each case that is investigated by each investigator is given its full intention and it's investigated to its full potential. Uh, that is, you know, the, the working model for SFPD. Coming from investigations, I, I understand that, you know, each investigator uh, puts forth their best effort to solve these cases. And unfortunately, you know, not having that information before me, I can't accurately, you know, answer it. But I know that our investigators are working to their best capacity with, you know, the resources that they have. Thank you. Um, my understanding from various meetings is that there is not currently any regular interdepartmental um, meeting or collaboration or task force or working group or anything formal of that nature. I, I just want to make sure that we're not missing something. Um, so is, Are, is that is that accurate? I'm not talking about informal communications between departments, but is there is there any kind of regular or formal meeting of multiple departments that occurs on any regular basis, monthly, quarterly? Um, you've talked about coordination within the police department, but with other uh, departments, does that happen? Yeah, that's correct. As uh, Lieutenant Jonas um, alluded to earlier, we do actively work with our investigative units and the investigative teams. We work with the lieutenants and captains of the Investigation Bureau. We hold weekly and daily meetings to discuss uh, crime trends, crime strategies, uh, current, uh, I guess, crime series to coordinate and devote resources to addressing the, the issue. So what's before us now is the outer break-ins. So every, every Monday morning, there's a crime trends call that myself and all the captains and the chiefs and all the lieutenants with Field Operations Bureau, Special Operations Bureau, uh, Investigations Bureau, uh, we all get together to discuss current crime trends. So if auto burglaries is one of the topics, then there's input from each of our divisions to discuss what's happening, uh, what the arrests were, and what the strategies are moving forward. I think, and I thank you for elaborating on within the police department, the various efforts to, to collaborate. Mm -hmm. What I just wanted to clarify, because I don't think it exists, and I, I, I personally think it should, is a more regular place where the police department with other departments gotcha. is convening on this. And from, from our research on this, it sounds like it's actually two DAs ago. It was uh, George, uh, former District Attorney Gascon, I think was the last one, who who convened that kind of interdepartmental meeting on a regular basis and that that has not been occurring. And I, I just, I, I just want to make sure I'm not missing something that exists, but it sounds like there's internal collaboration within the police department, but there's not 
I'm correct, there's not some kind of uh, regular meeting of multiple departments on the issue of car break-ins? You know, I can't say a regular meeting, but I am aware that Chief Scott, along with District Attorney uh, D.A. Jenkins, um, you know, uh, Reckon Park uh, Chief Murphy, you know, all discuss, you know, uh, the, the issues and the crime trends. I personally understand that I have worked with Reckon Park Chief Murphy to address some of these issues as far as auto burglaries. I can't give you a uh, a, a clear understanding of when these meetings occur, but I do know we do have working partnerships and collaborations with other city agencies, Park and Rec, SFMTA, uh, you know, um, just a multitude of, of different agencies uh, to collaborate and, and effectively help, you know, understand and address these issues. You know, all, when we talk about looking for video, you know, we, we go out to uh, SFMTA, you know, Muni buses have video, uh, city cameras uh, have video. So, you know, we do work in collaboration outside of San Francisco Police Department to, to effectively address and, and, and look at these issues. Thank you. Uh, another topic around victim assistance, and you referenced this earlier. Um, my office had the opportunity to connect with, um, uh, to connect with Andrea Carla uh, Michaels, uh, who was profiled by the San Francisco Chronicle for her work uh, picking up discarded pieces of, of luggage on the street and trying to reunite uh, them with their rightful owners. Um, it sounds like she has previously uh, tried to help SFPD to do this with discarded items uh, in SFPD's possession. Um, but I, I understand is now opting to try to do this through a lost and found kind of outside police department after running into some barriers. Um, I wanted to understand a little better how we are dealing with these kinds of situations. I understand in some situations you have evidence uh, that may relate to an investigation. There may be limits on, on your ability uh, to relinquish control of that. But, it, but can you just give a sense of wh what does SFPD do with the items uh, that are found and uh, what, what steps does SFPD take to get those items back to uh, their rightful owners? There, there is a process. So 100% of recovered property is kept in storage unless the owner is located, notified, and the property is returned. Then, by law, SFPD holds property for at least 90 days. However, as a courtesy, we will hold the property for 120 days. During that time, a notice is sent um, to the documented owner you know, via their ID, their passport, or anything that's labeled. If there's no response, if the owner is not known, uh, there's no other ID, after 120 days, the property is purged, um, which would have occurred when the property was initially booked into evidence. Um, again, if there's no response, items of identification, passports, and driver's license are shredded. Uh, clothing in good condition is donated. Uh, clothing in poor condition goes into the trash. High-value items such as jewelry, uh, electronics, are held for possible auctions. Um, in my own experience, uh, you know, items that are found uh, by the officers are turned into the district stations. Uh, the officers uh, are required to take that. There is an immediate attempt to uh, attempt to ID and locate the owners. Um, I did uh, state previously that uh, in 
some instances, we are successful in reuniting the items uh, with their, their owners. So uh, anything that is not immediately reunited, reunited with the owners is logged, categorized, and booked into property. An incident report is also completed to document that. Thank you, Commander. Supervisor Chen. Thank you, Chair, and uh, only because I also see that Mr. Chris Corgas uh, is here from OEWD, from our uh, Office in Economic and Workforce Development, and since Commander Jackson is here, along with Lieutenant Jones, I really wanted to um, say this and, and hope that, and, and thanks to Chair to mention about just you know, convening folks and having a conversation. I would love to, uh, if possible, to have a conversation with uh, you three or, or whoever else that you think gets involved to think of, of ways. I, I want to say um, some of the conversation, including with our uh, youth leaders uh, in the district, um, one of the ideas is like, what can we do to uh, identify ways to have lockers and storage where people can actually lock away their belongings in certain areas uh, instead of, you know, with them in a car. This is particularly for people who are visiting San Francisco. And when they check out of, like, the hotels, then they, they, they are kind of jammed with, a, you know, the, the, the only uh, way to, you know, carry with their things are really in there to keep to be kept in their car. So are there any ways that we could actually identify uh, somewhere else that it's a secure area for them to store their items before they leave town um, and, and all sorts? And so just love to explore that. Again, I am focusing on the Richmond and thinking could there be different spaces within you know, our neighborhood commercial corridor allowing those um, storage to be secured uh, for visitors and when they come. And so we'll love to have that conversation to see if that's even the, uh, something that's worth our time and resources to explore. Thank you, Supervisor. Yes, we welcome that conversation. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Supervisor Chan. Um, and um, if we could, I know we have folks from SFMTA um, here. If uh, they could come up, that would be great. Some questions. Um, Mr. Malone, welcome. Good morning. Um, and, th and thank you for being here. So my understanding, they, uh, I want to talk for a minute about the Park Smart campaign, which is housed within the uh, police department in collaboration with SF Safe, um, but also implemented in large part by, or part of it, by MTA, which actually posts the, the signage um, there. And um, uh, Commander Jackson talked about some of the background of the Park Smart um, campaign. Um, I, I will share my view, which is we need a major reboot of that. It, it is the right idea, but it uh, needs an update. And if you walk around these high impact areas, you'll see like text only signs, two types of signs. One says park smart and the other says prevent theft. If you're not an English speaker, forget it. There's nothing on there. Even if you are one, you got to read the fine print on them to even figure out what you're being told. And I would submit that we should all be using our design brains and our creativity to have image-based signage that makes the point very clearly in a bright color that anyone who speaks any language will understand saying, do not leave, you know, that, that sends the message, do not leave anything in your, your car. Um, 
But I, I wanted to find out, you know, as the agency that is responsible for posting these signs, um, when is, what is that design process? When is the last time those signs have been updated? Um, I mean, the ones I see in the areas in D5 have kind of been there forever. Um, so I don't think it's been updated recently, but can you shed any light on, on that or if there's a current effort to, you know, or plans to post any new signage? That, that you uh, sure, first, good morning, Mr. Chair, members of the good committee. Morning. Rob Malone with SFMTA. Uh, if I could just answer, uh, I will answer your question. If I just first, by way of introduction, say yes, we have, of course, been involved in the, in the ParkSmart effort uh, from, the, from the beginning, and, my, and myself personally as well. Um, just to clarify, I work in the uh, parking and curb management um, subdivision of the MTA, so I have most direct been, been working there for uh, almost 11 years, so have um, most direct experience um, with um, off-street parking, so our uh, city-owned parking garages and also there's some metered parking lots, but also work very closely with um, the folks who work most directly regarding on-street um, parking and operations. I've personally uh, been involved uh, in working with then Captain Lazar uh, at, for, at Central Station probably since back in 2015 um, as a very great uh, collaborator with MTA on these issues and was involved in developing uh, what was shown on the screen a little earlier one example of the Park Smart signage and rollout um, that, that happened uh, in 2017. Um, so to my knowledge, uh, that no redesign has happened since then. So we have actively participated with the police, then I think it was acting Mayor Farrell at the time and others to um, launch that program, both with signage on the street that supplemented the, the, uh, the prevent theft signs that were up from a previous era, as I understand, but also um, throughout the, the parking garages as well at entries and elevators, lobbies as well. So we've been an active participant in that and, and uh, have, feel like we've had very good coordination with the police in that effort. But again, I think no redesign effort has even been contemplated that I'm aware of since 2017. We are very happy to participate in conversations about a redesign and can engage with our, you know, the MTA has some communications uh, team members with some, some of the graphic design uh, expertise that you, you alluded to in your letter. We're happy to engage those folks as part of a, a design review effort, I guess let's call it, uh, that could potentially come up um, with some uh, new new designs that, uh, and we're happy to support um, ruling those out once you know everyone involved would agree that it's an improved and enhanced design that makes sense. Thank you so much, and and won't get into you know, for in the interest of time, all the the details around this. I do appreciate your the willingness from MTA, uh, and I assume from SFPD as well, in 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 looking at how we can kind of reboot some of the the imagery. And it's not, to, and, and I, I want to be clear, it's not to like criticize the 2016, 2017. I mean, that was a sort of groundbreaking new effort, and you know, an effort to communicate with people, right? But I I just think I, I can just. Tell, tell you with certainty and everyone that someone who pulls up and sees one of those signs, especially if English is not their first language, will have no idea that they should be taking everything out of their car. They really have to read the fine print. Um, and so look forward to, to working with you on, on that. And, uh, you know, we, we sent a letter to all departments kind of outlining some of that, even including some ideas of, hey, here's what some more 
visual image could look like. I, I say that with the huge disclaimer that we're not graphic designers. Uh, I have a staff of four. I think each of these departments has a staff of hundreds, if not thousands of people. So hopefully we can all put our heads together and have, have something that speaks, particularly speaking to folks who are non-English speakers. Because my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that none of the currently posted signs are in any language other than English. That's my understanding as well. And they're all text-based, right? Like there's not, a, there's not a park smart sort of visual image that would show someone don't leave anything in your car. Not on the street, correct. Yeah. Right. Um, if, if I could just make Please. a couple other comments about on, on street and um, there some, you, you mentioned ideas in your letter, which I'm prepared to respond to one other one specifically because I have some good news uh, for you. <laughs> Please, great. And, and I should mention that one of the other things we mentioned in our letter was a suggestion to MTA um, around some of the hardest hit areas are areas that have meters and looking at whether we could have stickers and signage on meters as well as with the pay by phone options, whether there can be some kind of automated text back telling people, and so, so we raised a number of those issues. I assume that's what you're right. referring to. Right, sorry if I'm jumping ahead of no, your, no, your question. No, no, absolutely. Um, ju just it. one issue, and, and I want to lead into the issue of messaging on the meters themselves and the pay-by-phone app by making one other comment about the on-street signage. Um, so as I stated, of course, we're happy to participate in the effort to look at that signage. A significant challenge with the on-street signage is it kind of needs to be higher up than intuitively all of us would agree is, makes it most visible. So uh, it's kind of logical, I guess. Well, it would be great if it were five or five and a half feet off the ground at everybody's eye level. The problem is that's been tried and signs immediately get vandalized, either just damaged, tagged with graffiti or stickers. So you'll find that, that uh, um, this is not my specific area of expertise. My understanding is we try to keep signage seven feet or higher just to prevent those issues. So while enhanced signage might be uh, warranted in certain cases, that's always gonna be a challenge because they, of the height they need to be. Um, but in response to the suggestion about messaging within the meters, we were able to work somewhat quickly, um, operations folks within MTA that work very closely with our meteor vendors. And we actually, I just saw yesterday, some pilot uh, updated messaging actually on the screens of the meters. So this, the first one I've seen is with our, our multi-space uh, meter. And, and, and this also is true with the, the screen that comes up when you engage with the pay by phone app to pay at meter. So at the moment, We've just added some verbiage similar to what's on the sign, like please take all valuables with you. Please don't leave your valuables. So that was actually a much simpler uh, effort than in, in my initial conversations with your staff and we thought it might be. So we actually have successfully done that and are prepared to just roll that out uh, in, in short order here. We'll let you know, your office know, of course, uh, as soon as it's done. So that would effectively um, you know, hit, you know, hundreds of, of meters immediately, and then everyone, the, the, you know, hundreds, if not more than that per day, thousands a day who use that pay-by-phone app, that's a very quick, immediate way to communicate to numerous people, and, and I thought it was an excellent suggestion, and we think it's a, a 
better way, more effective and quicker way to get communication to people uh, and more so even than potentially uh, you know, additional signage might be. So we're, we're very happy to move forward with that suggestion. Great, thank you very much. And yeah, and some of this is, uh, sometimes people don't listen to a message when they hear it from one place, but when they hear it in four different directions, it, it uh, sinks in, so you never know what's gonna tip the scale. So th th that's great to hear uh, that you're able to do that. Thank you. Um, I wanted to invite up uh, Mr. Corgus from OEWD. And then I promise we're getting close to public comment here. So, um, but I did want to ask uh, you a couple questions, and um, and I think obviously OEWD interacts with this in a number of ways, both in terms of your work to promote tourism and work with the tourism industry, also with the community benefit districts, um, and um, who are who are dealing with this, um, and then. Also, your, um, uh, your work, some of that now shared, I guess, with DEM, but around ambassadors and, and, and other outreach in, in uh, neighborhoods. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, one, one of the um, recommendations of the Civil Grand Jury Report back in, I believe it was 2016, was, um, was using ambassadors um, to talk to people as they park their car, to hand them whatever the flyer or information is to catch people. And I will tell you, you know, I mean, a lot of us do this. <laughs> like when people park near where I live, I, you know, I, if they're a tourist, I walk up to them and I look at, and I tell them, do not leave anything in your car, right? Um, and people posted their own sort of DIY signs to that effect and so forth. But, um, but specifically on the issue of ambassadors, um, to do this this work um, has has OEWD explored that in all your work piloting and pioneering and overseeing a lot of these ambassador programs um, whether whether as recommended by the civil grand jury back in 2016 we can do that and I should note like we have way more ambassadors than when the civil grand jury was recommending that at that time it was OSEA with a much more limited staff now we have many more ambassadors everything from retired police to urban alchemy to all the different CBD programs and an expanded OCF. So uh, do you want to comment on that? Absolutely. Thank you, Supervisor Preston, Chris Korgish, Deputy Director, Community Economic Development Division of OEWD. Um, to go back in 2016, we did have the Community Benefit District ambassadors as well. They've been on the streets since at least 2005, 1999 for Union Square. Um, I can tell you that for Fisherman's Wharf and Union Square, which are two highest uh, density CBDs related to tourism, that they did actively participate in the ParkSmart campaign, that they do actively work with the police department. Those partnerships are strong and they continue to this day. They work very closely with other city departments, MTA, Rec and Park as well. And that I believe at that time, their ambassadors on the ground were handing out collateral um, to tourists in the in the areas. Thank you. And, and is there an effort to make sure that ambassadors are specifically promoting the Park Smart campaign and the material from the Park Smart campaign, or is there separate material that's developed by each of these 
ambassador groups and CBDs that you're referencing? I would have to confirm with each CBD individually throughout the city. Um, as you know, there's uh, 15 of the property-based districts. Um, but for Fisherman's Wharf, um, I believe their information was coming directly from the Park Smart campaign in coordination with SFPD and MTA. Um, Union Square, I believe it as well was Park Smart at the time as well. Thank you. Um, I don't expect you to answer this today, but I, I do just want to plant this seed of, you know, as we're looking at per, perhaps more of a reboot or a Park Smart 2.0, 3.0, wherever we are, um, and, and potentially involving ambassadors more as recommended by the by civil grand jury and as is being undertaken to some degree, it sounds like already. Um, I, I do want to just really raise the question of who should be coordinating that, right? I think a lot of this work has defaulted to the police department to lead the Park Smart campaign with the assistance of SF Safe. Um, I don't know whether this, whether that's, you know, on this portion, not on the enforcement piece, but on the issue of getting the word out either directly through ambassadors or through signage. Um, we have MTA involved. OEWD obviously is deeply, cares deeply about this issue as it impacts uh, tourism and local economy uh, and SFPD. Um, I would just welcome, if anyone wants to comment on it now, fine, but I do think in a, at, you know, going forward in the upcoming weeks would love to talk with each department about their views on who, who should, you know, who should convene and lead uh, that, that outreach and education work um, and the interdepartmental collaboration required for that. So I, I don't know if you want to comment on that. I don't mean to put you we, in the We'd spot. look forward to that conversation. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. Great. Uh, Vice Chair Stephanie. Thank you. Actually, this is just a comment going back to clearance rates. So um, no questions from me, Chris. Um, just the, you know, I feel like there's this implication that the low clearance rate, the 1% to 2% clearance rate is somehow um, SFPD falling down on the job. And I think that's an unfair assumption to make um, given um, the nature of this crime. And as someone who started um, in my career in law enforcement and really working with the DA's office and working with SFPD in my district on this issue, I feel like I'm seeing so much cooperation that I haven't seen before, and I just want to highlight that. And, you know, we can't talk about this crime without talking about how difficult it is for our officers to respond to it. The career criminals who are, you know, the repeat offenders who are doing this over and over again are getting better and better and better at it. And we know that sometimes it takes less than 10 seconds to break a window with the devices that they have. Um, and it's once that window is broken, they steal the stuff and they drive away. We also know that even if there happened to be an officer in the area, and usually given our staffing shortage, like I said, we don't have officers saturated in the areas where we know to be um, uh, hot spots for this activity. We just don't have enough because we have to have our officers respond to violent crime as well. And when you when you look at that and you look at the fact that Officers are not allowed to gauge in high-speed pursuits for stolen goods. It's not allowed by the police commission. They're just not allowed to do it. You know, there's an exclam exclamation explanation as to why um, these clearance rates are so low. Also, in this crime, they don't leave fingerprints. 
Um, we know that the use of stolen cars is up. We know that license plates are switched out. It happened to one of my friends. She had a license plate stolen off her car, and we found her license plate on another car in, um, in District 3. Um, and the, so, you know, we are dealing with that aspect of it as well. And so, I, you know, I, I just want to say regarding this, I mean, this idea that somehow SFPD is not doing a good job, I just don't think it's a fair assumption to make if anyone is making that assumption, and that you can't deny that um, those involved in organized crime are getting smarter and smarter and more efficient, and they know there's a shortage here. They know that it's easier to commit crime here based on that. Um, also, with this crime, there's also a rise of places where they can sell these stolen goods. It's it, on the street, it's e-commerce, it's on the websites, and um, with that in mind, it's easy to do, it's low risk, and it's high reward. And I do know that the police department and the DA are working together to target high-level sellers, so that's the back end of this as well. So. I just don't, I don't feel comfortable leaving that impression if anyone were to get that impression that somehow that low clearance rate is somehow SFPD not trying, not working, and not trying um, to really get at this problem that's plaguing San Francisco, one of the densest cities, that um, it's easier here to commit this crime based on uh, many factors. So just wanted to say that. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Chair Stephanie, and I just want to say that I'm I think uh, I don't think that uh, my questions were implying anything of that nature, um, and I think we're citing data, and that the data helps us informs what solutions um, are going to be most effective. Um, with that, I'd like to open this item up for public comment. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for item number one? Please line up along the curtain wall to your right. Remote public call-in members, please press star three now to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. Thank you, first speaker. You may proceed. Uh, Welcome. Yeah, good morning. Um, I'm um, Andrea Carla Michaels, the um, woman who's tried to set up Lost and Found San Francisco. Um, and um, first of all, I appreciate all of you supervisors um, super focusing on this uh, to move forward. So I just want to add a couple of comments on uh, positive concrete things going forward that I think could be um, done to undo some of the chaos of the aftermath of um, these thousands of break-ins. And um, uh, I, I, sp I spend my day... Um, redistributing food and clothes in alleys and picking up luggage. So, um, uh, and have been part of, uh, resident for 40 years and part of, and remember when Park Smart started on through. So going forward, um, I just think that this is um, a, a, a huge thing, even beyond police, but for the tourist board, because they're the ones that um, are suffering and they're the direct beneficiaries of the Good Samaritans who are trying to restore some of San Francisco's reputation. It's so sad that people are afraid to come here now. And so um, I love the idea that you keep bringing up of the collaboration between departments. And to that point, I just wanted to um, mention a couple of highlights of that. I think the tourist board, in coordination with the city, needs to set up um, a centralized lost... 
You have 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Oh my God, okay. Um, so set up a, a lost and found um, that combines with uh, luggage storage um, so that people can feel free. Um, car rentals, of course, and I think the police should be spending their time going after the fences and um, the markets and not have to waste their time um, going through backpacks, so that should be more open uh, to volunteers if they could get it out of evidence room and into a lost and found situation first. And not. To, oh my gosh, okay. The two-minute mark, thank you. Thank you so much, and a reminder to folks, you can submit uh, written comments to supplement your public comment, but we do cap uh, public comment at two minutes for everyone. Welcome. Okay, short amount of time. I'm Dave Jordan, uh, Supervisor Preston, you're my supervisor. I sent an email this morning. It sounded like you almost read it in your opening comments, so that I appreciate it. I'm out helping people on Alamo Square uh, several hours a week, uh, just telling tourists not to leave stuff in their car. One of the big things is timing. I appreciate the, uh, your, your comment earlier about timing. It's, it's not about, oh, don't leave anything in your car. These tourists, they know they're leaving stuff in their car. I, I'm, I'm taught to hundreds. I could, I, if you want like what the trends are and what tourists think and all that kind of stuff, I'm the guy. I'm Deputy Dave with, of the people around there <laughs> that, the, in the community. But it's about timing. It's like they know, oh, I'm just gonna take a picture, I'll be gone five minutes. And I'm like, it takes 10 seconds. I'm gonna demonstrate for you how it works. Um, I, try to in, I try to introduce myself in a way that doesn't frighten people. Um, I'm going to tell you one of my, I've got a whole spiel, my secret weapon. I go in and almost never, they, have, they don't have the wheels curved. We live on a hill, Alamo Square is all hills. And I'm like, hey, you don't have your wheels curved. It's not a big deal, but you'll get a ticket if you don't do it. Oh, by the way, that's how the bad guys, one of the trends, they look down the aisle, they see no wheels curved, boom, that's a car I'm going to go after. Also, if your bait cards are there, if it's not an SUV that looks like a rental, then it's not gonna do any good because they are expecting bait cars and they're looking for things that have a package inside. So, um, and I try to convince the tourists frequently that the excuse is like you said, they've got all their luggage because they haven't checked into the hotel yet or haven't checked or they just checked out, making sure they know they need to go leave those bags with um, you know, a bell or something like that. Uh, but I'm happy to be on uh, any committee as an ambassador of that area to try to get more people and help either on the front end with the people that are parking or on the back end. I've submitted lots of, I've worked with Northern Station, I've submitted lots of video footage. So anyway, there we go. Thank you very much. Next speaker, please. Hi there. My name is Jenny Feldman. I'm also a resident of Alamo Square, and I'm also often um, either consoling people who've had their cars broken into or trying to warn people in advance not to leave things in their cars. But one thing that I didn't hear today was any discussion of technology that might be employed to help, um, particularly in light of the officer shortage. I understand there's a technology called Star Chase that some other uh, police departments are using to track cars as they leave so as to prevent dangerous high-speed chases and just wanted to see if that was potentially on the agenda for SFPD. Okay, are there any other speakers here in the chamber that would like to speak to this item before we go to our call-in? Seeing no additional speakers in the chamber, we currently have 10 callers with six in the speaking queue. Mr. Kawana, may we please have the first caller? Good morning, this is Mr. Dennis Williams Jr., real estate developer of D5, awarded community leader by this Board of Supervisors. We cannot continue 
to overstress the SFPD and the SF residents without supervisors doing everything to assist them. And that is hiring black micro and small businesses and funding new CDCs. We do not want high-speed chases throughout our city. We do not want minority deaths or SFPD deaths. This is a real problem. Currently, billions of federal redevelopment funding meant to house and provide jobs for San Francisco historical black communities is going to out-of-state billionaire white and Asian slumlord developers. Check the Chronicle. While blacks in the communities, businessmen like myself cannot even gain partnerships nor lucrative contracts, this would enable us to hire the youth, troubled youth of all races and give them on-site job training. It is very telling and alarming, statistically speaking, that no supervisor has black real estate developers on any of their affordable housing or homeless housing agendas, unless it's the same companies that they've been using for decades. No one is getting the new share of a economic opportunity. Our communities are suffering supervisors. Racism and lack of integrity on behalf of SF leadership, in my estimation, is the main cause of crime in SF. Again, we cannot continue to overstress the SFPD or the SF residents. Thank you. Thank you for your comments today, Mr. Williams. May I please have the next caller? Hello, caller. Seems like your line is unattended. May we go to the next caller? Yes, hi. This is Kristen Evans, District 5 small business owner. I'm also a member of the Haight-Ashbury Merchants Association. Um, today I'm speaking for myself. Um, you know, I've participated in community police meetings going back more than a decade talking about these issues in our neighborhood. And um, in particular, I know that, uh, that Haight-Ashbury is impacted, but more so um, Golden Gate Park. And so I was disappointed to hear that Park and Rec did not participate in today's uh, session. Um, there are just huge stretches of uh, the Golden Gate Park uh, roadways where you can just see littered with glass um, and cars targeted. And that's really also a key area that really needs to be prioritized. Um, I think uh, I, I like what I'm hearing today in terms of uh, all of the potential new strategies, um, some additional ones that I wanted to contribute. Um, I do like the idea of having community ambassadors handing out materials to tourists in high-impacted um, uh, areas. I also um, would suggest maybe looking into ways that we might get messaging to people who are in their cars with their cell phones. So whether that's um, messaging to people through um, map, uh, app, uh, apps uh, like Google Maps, Apple Maps, and Waze, maybe also thinking about like ways that we can do like a geo fence around uh, San Francisco with you know mobile text messages to indicate to people um, when there's they're entering an area give them a message that they're entering an area that is known for car break-ins and to park smart and all the other instructions that go along with that um, and then also of course I think rental car companies can certainly play a much bigger um, part um, in, in this solution as well since Many of these cars that are being broken on uh, are uh, owned by rental car companies, and so having, you know, printed material or that's even like, you know, inside the vehicle. I apologize for the interruption, um, Kristen Evans. Apologies again for the interruption. Mm -hmm. 
your time has elapsed. Each caller is being granted two minutes for comments. Thank you for your comments today. Before we go to the next call-in member, seeing that we have more people joining us here in the chamber, is there anyone in the chamber that would like to address today's discussion on the city's plan for break-ins? Okay, seeing no additional speakers, we'll continue with our phone line. Thank you. May we please have the next caller? Hi, this is Adam from D6, and to be frank, I'm very disappointed in what I'm hearing from the committee this morning. It sounds a lot like victim blaming and not a lot of solutions. Um, to substitute some words in um, a tweet that Supervisor Preston sent out, would we be happy telling visitors, we need as a city to pound in every way possible the message to visitors do not dress sexy when you leave the club. Do this, and we'll dramatically reduce sexual assaults. Pardon me. Would we tell Sorry visitors, to interrupt the speaker. Do not. Yes? Hello, you may not address the supervisor directly. You can speak to the supervisor. Oh, I'm not addressing. I'm addressing the committee. I'm, I am address, I'm addressing the committee um, as a whole regarding a public tweet that was posted. Okay, thank you. Thank you for clarifying. Proceed. So going back to that, yo, would we be happy telling visitors, do not let Asian elders walk alone by themselves, do this, and we'll dramatically reduce assault on Asian elders? This is what I'm hearing from the committee. We're not talking about how do we make things safer. This is not an issue of here in Selma, whole streets get smashed into when the cars have nothing in them. Residents are dealing with this along with tourists. And we don't see activity from SFPD. I can walk to Union Square and go to the Apple Store, and I will see eight, nine police officers standing outside the Apple Store. When car break-ins happen in Soma, we're ignored. No officer comes out. We're told, hey, if you want to do something, file a report. Honestly, we need to get solutions as to how this how we can solve this, whether that's bait cars, whether that's hiring more officers, whether that's hiring alternative solutions or people Adam. for alternative solutions. Thank you for your comment. Your two you. minutes has elapsed. Thank you. May we please have the next caller? Hi, as a San Franciscan, I'm in District 1. I don't want to see police cars chasing through our streets because I don't want to be hit when I'm walking the crosswalk. So I thought we talked about this before. Um, I think that we need to be smart. Um, I heard a lot of great things from other San Franciscans today. Um, I just don't understand, like, for certain dedicated areas, very public dedicated areas, why isn't police stationed there daily as their hubs? To me, it always sounds like more of a scheduling issue with the police department than, uh, than like, you know, they keep saying numbers. We understand that you're low on numbers, but there are certain things that you need to do that are consistent so that people feel safe. Um, also, like, this is a meeting about oversight. So when our supervisors are there, I don't want to hear excuses like, or admiration. I want to hear like our supervisors talk about oversight, ask about workflow, 
ask about um, following up in 30, 60, 90 days about what's working. As a San Franciscan, we are the ones who can give out admiration and thank them, and, but we need you to do more targeted oversight. Um, we appreciate everybody, we appreciate everybody who works here, but we, we all deserve to have like a working city. Um, regarding like the San Francisco travel website, they also have no information for tourists about just little smart things to do when traveling. When I've traveled to other places within our country and outside, I get a little, there's like a little steel on the bottom. Don't leave things in your car. Um, make sure you carry your wallet in front of you or with a pouch. Like, uh, unfortunately, we do have to keep Sorry telling for people the not to do this, whether Thank you, Speaker. Sorry for the interruption. Thank Everyone you so is much. scheduled two minutes. Thank you. May we please have the next caller? Um, hi, uh, my name is Robert Emmons. I'm the owner of San Francisco Mercantile and Haight-Ashbury uh, in the Haight-Ashbury District. Um, I'm concerned that what I'm hearing here is too many Band-Aid solutions and not getting to the root of the issue, and that is that it's an organized crime issue and they're fencing goods. Having extra signage out and having ambassadors is not a solution to the problem. We need to hire more police officers. We need to have our our um, city hall focused on police officers and the work that they do. We need to give them the resources and the tools that they need to get to the base, the root of these problems and stop the organized crime. Thank you. Thank you for your comments today. We currently have nine listeners with two in the queue to speak. If you intend to speak to this item, please dial star three now to be added to the queue. May we please have the next caller? Yes, good morning. My name is Lisa Aubrey. I'm a District 5 resident. Also recently, my catalytic converter was stolen from my vehicle. Um, very frustrating. Thank you to the supervisors for holding this very important hearing. Um, I really believe it's an all hands on deck kind of thing. I don't think this hearing was held to blame or shame anyone. Our solutions, uh, should be data driven and the data is showing that what we are doing is not working um, for whatever reason, if it's because we don't have enough police officers or because tourists don't know what to do. It's, it's all of these things. But um, I, I, it's striking that there is such a disconnect between it seems like what the police are doing is what they always do. And I do understand they can't pursue these organized thieves in car chases because people will die if they do that. But we've been asking for foot patrols in the Haight-Ashbury for a very, very long time. And um, I, the police would be present on the street and the merchants and tourists and residents would know that, and that would absolutely be a deterrent. And um, the data shows that that is yet another effective way to deal with this. We can't chase them in cars. So um, I think we need to think differently about what we're doing because what we're doing is not working and the data is showing that. And everyone, residents, neighbors, elected people, 
uh, police officers, um, our Good Samaritan ambassadors, everyone can play a part in solving this problem, and we must. Thank you. Thank you for your comments today. May we please have the next caller? Hi, I'm a D1 resident, and I just find the comments made today extremely disingenuous. We all know that cars with nothing in them can get broken into. And further than that, to echo what other callers have said, this practice of victim blaming is shameful. You know, everyone knows that it's an epidemic. Uh, supervisors are talking about a survey done seven years ago. We still have the same issue. Um, San Francisco PD is obviously doing an atrocious job, evidenced by the glass all over the city. Um, supervisors making comments, you never know what's gonna tip the scale. As a constituent, from a constituent perspective, it seems like they're doing literally nothing. So how about doing anything? Um, I don't know why residents should be, should be having to pay for city garages or parking meters when they come back to vandalized and broken vehicles. I don't believe that signs are the issue. As a constituent, constituents know not to leave things in their car. You know, so you're pandering to tourists and tourists know to leave nothing in their car because this is on the national media. It's embarrassing as a resident. Um, data has shown that police staffing has no direct correlation with, with crime numbers in San Francisco. You know, I'm not saying we need to have high-speed chases. Maybe we can put uh, police on the bridges, on the freeways exiting. I'm absolutely certain that bipping has an outsized effect on marginalized communities and hurts people on, you know, on the poverty line. Um, you know, this is atrocious. You need to do something. This is an embarrassment. An election's coming up, and I hope you all get voted out. Thank you for addressing the committee today. Before we go to our last caller, if you are on the line and would like to speak to this item, please dial star three now. Seeing no additional callers, we'll take our last caller now, please. Hi, my name is Zach. I'm in District 5 on Alamo Square and would echo many of the other comments from the public uh, dialogue. It's just gone out of control with the amount of smashing crabs happening every day. You know, we walk around, we see it, we see the glass everywhere. Nothing really seems to be being done about this. Um, you know, 37 arrests on 22,000 plus incidents, that's not effective, sadly not effective. And it just leaves everyone with a bad taste in their mouth. Um, in my view, 99% of all the vehicles that are committing this have tinted windows. It's a California state law. I don't understand why San Francisco police are not pulling over every vehicle with tinted windows and you know, enforcing those laws as they are written. Um, and I also think that the police department needs to be more effective with their technology. I mean, people bipping and breaking into the cars are using Bluetooth Wi-Fi seeking devices to tell where vehicles are that have expensive electronics in them, police should be doing the same thing, you know, whether it's tracking that device um, or more importantly, I think tracking, like how can we track vehicles and cars like the Alamo Square incident a couple weeks ago where the perpetrators right in front of a police car but can't be pursued or followed through the city due to policing policies. How can we track those vehicles that are committing crimes, whether it's triangulating cell phone technology, whether it's identifying the car electronically, like electronic paintball, you know, identification of it, 
but somehow we need to be able to track these vehicles so that the police can get the upper hand in all of this. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. It looks like we had one person jump into the queue. Maybe please have this caller, please. Hi, good morning. My name is Cheryl Thornton. I live in District 10, but I work in District 5. And my car was recently broken into in the Tenderloin District. Um, and um, they, you know, they stole my garage door opener and got in, um, in my glove compartment. And, you know, my address was on my uh, vehicle registration. So, you know, um, for the last three weeks, I've been worried that my house was going to be broken into. I did make a police report, and I've yet to see, um, to you know, um, my case has not been assigned. My car was parked in front of the um, Hamilton Family Shelter, um, and there were cameras there, but I'm not allowed to see the footage because it's, you know, um, there's a privacy thing, um, a privacy law, uh, and yet the police, it was assigned to an investigator but I've yet to hear from anybody. And so, you know, my husband is a retired SFPD. And, you know, I just feel like unsafe. And um, I, I think that there's a disparity how they respond in some neighborhoods versus other neighborhoods. And, um, you know, I was at work. We don't have parking because, you know, the city doesn't supply us parking and it's too dangerous for us to walk through the Civic Center every day. So, you know, this is just like really a difficult situation. And I think that there needs to be something done about the tenderloin in particular, how they respond to um, break-ins. So thank you. Let's follow up. Thank you. Thank you much for your comments today. Let me check and see if we have any other callers. And that was the last caller, Chair. Thank you. Public comment on this item is now closed. Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Chair. Um, I want to thank all the people that made public comments, and I think that um, it is uh, regrettable. I, I think when we talk about prevention strategy, I don't think that anybody in this room or particularly, uh, at least I, I know that I am not, uh, in when we discuss prevention strategy in any way victim blaming. We, I think it's just a way to, like, what can we do to prevent that? But I also do think that um, I also wanted to say I, I can hear from the public commenters that there's also a level of frustration for, for all of us, you know, and, and um, I definitely want to own part of that, you know, what can we do to work together for a solution, both on prevention side, and we look to um, our police department, and again, want to thank Commander Jackson and Lieutenant Jones being here to just really help us, um, and I do understand that the frustration you know, with 15,000 cases and, and seeing the 37 arrests. Look forward to learning more about the arrest, uh, perhaps like coming back with, because I understand the 37 is really uh, just for the plain clothes for, for the investigation, perhaps that we can come back with the more specific numbers about the arrests and clearance for these um, cases on average and, and have a, a, a different conversation um, that we can provide more um, information and hopefully that kind of bring all of us to a space where we can discuss uh, not just prevention, but uh, uh, what will happen or what do we, what can we do uh, when these incidents occurred, both providing services to the victims, 
and how do we resolve these cases and continue to um, reduce the crime rate. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Chan, uh, and thank you both colleagues for your comments and questions um, today. Um, I, I do want to echo the, the I, I, I don't think that efforts to uh, prevent crime are in, in any way victim blaming, and, I, and you do hear that from some quarters, is not something I hear from SFPD or from OEWD or from any department working on this. I think everyone understands um, that actually prevention, it's an all of the above approach and that the prevention part is actually part of the deterrence, right? And I think it's important that people understand that, you know, part of why, regardless of how much enforcement you do, part of why this will continue to persist is because people feel there is an opportunity to come into San Francisco and in areas to be able to hit five, 10 cars uh, when there's an opportunity and, uh, and, and get valuable items. Uh, and so we have to uh, dry up that opportunity. Uh, and that's part of what the uh, prevention efforts uh, are geared at too. I also wanna say that you know the data is telling, right? I mean, the only time we've seen a significant drop was 2020, right? We've had a little incremental ups and downs year to year. We had, we had over 40% drop. So it's not like folks are out there just breaking into cars for fun and they're gonna do it no matter what. Like what happened in 2020 was that there were not tourists in San Francisco. So we, we obviously want tourists back to the greatest extent possible, but we would like there not to be tourist vehicles that have stuff in them that create the opportunity. I mean, we saw over a 40% drop in 2020. So I'm interested in how we move the needle. Like I said, I think it's an all of the above approach. We've had a lot of ideas or heard a lot of ideas today. Um, what's clear to me is more than anything, this conversation needs to be happening and continue in a multi-departmental way. I think there needs to be regular meetings between the departments with actual metrics for success. We need to set a goal in terms of a specified reduction in car break-ins and commit all together to achieve that. Um, we need to make sure that the enforcement approaches are smart, efficient, and effective. We need to better support victims. We need to reboot the Park Smart campaign, as we've talked about, and expand efforts uh, to make sure no one leaves anything in their cars. Uh, we've proposed some ideas, departments have shared their thoughts, the public has weighed in with some interesting suggestions, um, and our office is committed to, to working uh, with everyone to, to continue to move this forward. And, and I just wanna wrap up by thanking everyone who participated in the hearing, uh, Commander Jackson, SFPD, OEWD, uh, MTA, uh, and, and also folks who, while they didn't present, uh, particularly SF Travel uh, and some of the rental car companies in particular want to note uh, Enterprise for taking a considerable amount of time uh, with our office uh, to share their thoughts and, and their efforts um, to, uh, to educate um, uh, tourists uh, that, they, that they deal with. So I uh, really appreciate everyone's engagement, which I think is an encouraging sign uh, that folks were all able to, to come together around this and, and we would like to continue those efforts uh, with urgency. So I would like to colleagues um, to continue this to the call of the chair so that we can uh, bring it back uh, for, for updates in the future. Um, and unless there are further comments, uh, I'd like to make a motion Madam Clerk, uh, to continue this item to the call of the chair.
Thank you. And on that motion, Vice Chair Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. And Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Thank you, everyone. Uh, that motion passes. Uh, and Madam Clerk, please call item number two. Item number two is a resolution expressing the Board of Supervisors' concern regarding the development of the United Nations Activation Plan and displacement of the heart of the city's farmer's market from the UN Plaza, urging the Recreation and Park Department to adopt mitigation requests by the farmer's market and urging the Recreation and Park Department to provide information to the public and Board of Supervisors regarding the pilot activation plan. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call the number scrolling across your screen. When prompted, enter the meeting ID, then press pound twice. If you have not done so already, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait for the system to indicate that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, this is a resolution that I authored and thank you, um, President Peskin, for your uh, uh, co-sponsorship um, to increase uh, transparency on uh, Rec Park's uh, UN Plaza pilot activation plan. Um, and in particular, I think what's been of, of perhaps greatest concern about the plan is the displacement of the heart of the city farmers market from UN Plaza. Um, and th that since the introduction, that the market has now been moved um, from UN Plaza over to Fulton Plaza. We'll talk more about that. Um, despite our repeated urging for many months, the uh, Rec Park Department refused to hold any community meetings to get input on the plans uh, or work collaboratively with key stakeholders, um, including neighborhood business owners, um, Tenderloin community leaders, and residents, um, labor unions impacted, uh, and uh, the farmer's market, uh, which was really given no choice uh, in being removed from UN Plaza. Um, the heart of the city farmer's market is, and I know many of you are familiar with it, is really an incredible market. It's brought so much the to the neighborhood for decades and at a time when there have been so many struggles on UN Plaza uh, to have positive, healthy activations there, everyone agrees. I have not heard from a single person who does not agree that the heart of the city farmer's market has been a success and has activated UN Plaza in a positive way that served the community. Through severe challenges over the years, including extensive challenges on the plaza itself, the farmer's market serves more than 20,000 people on Sundays and Wednesdays, features uh, over 50 California farmers, many of whom travel far to, for hours to get here and sell their produce. Um, the farmer's market manages distribution and redemption of the largest farmer's market EBT program in the nation and makes over a million dollars per year in grant-funded incentives to help low-income families purchase fruit and vegetables from the local farms. Um, in July, Rec Park filed plans for an activation of UM Plaza, which included installing a skate park and other recreational activities on the plaza scheduled to be done in and activated in November of 2023 and as I mentioned moving the farmers market 
uh, to Fulton Plaza in September, um, which, is, which has occurred and, and construction has begun. Um, these developments were forced on the farmer's market and happened, as I mentioned, without community uh, meetings and with no clear commitments to the farmer's market or the community on the length of the pilot or the uh, measures the city would undertake to mitigate the impact on the farmer's market uh, or, importantly, any metrics for determining at some point in the future what, whether this pilot was a success or not and whether the farmer's market would be moved back on UM Plaza uh, or not if they were not able to succeed in the new location. Uh, this was originally represented by Rec Park as a six-month pilot with the representation that the changes were, were temporary and easily reversible, if not successful, so that the farmer's market could move back. Um, instead, uh, the farmer's market was informed at a meeting that we convened in our office with some key stakeholders, uh, including farmer's market and Rec Park, at which uh, Rec Park informed all of us for the first time uh, that this, what it was previously represented as a six-month pilot, was in fact going to be a two-year pilot, and that there were no metrics for determining whether the activation of UM Plaza or the relocation of the farmer's market were a success. No metrics to base that determination on uh, during this now proposed two-year pilot. So the resolution urges Rec Park to provide necessary information to the public, including the duration of the pilot, the itemized costs and sources of funds, detailed plans, the metrics for evaluating the pilot, the commitments to the farmer's market to mitigate the impact of their move, um, and uh, the metrics for evaluating the success of the farmer's market in the new location and the plans for returning the farmer's market to UM Plaza if the temporary relocation is not successful. Um, I want to thank uh, Steve Pulliam, at, at the head of the farmer's market, um, the many patrons of the market who've reached out, uh, and my legislative aide, Jennifer Bolin, who's worked tirelessly on this, uh, and again, thank President Peskin for his interest and concern uh, and involvement here as well. My office is 100% committed to making sure the farmer's market survives and thrives, and I will say from my limited conversations with some of my colleagues, uh, everyone I have talked to shares uh, that uh, commitment to the farmer's market. We requested that Rec Park be here today to lay out the project and answer questions, particularly given that they've never held a full community meeting on this. We thought they should do so publicly. Uh, we were informed that Rec Park was refusing to send a representative to this meeting. We were informed that on Tuesday, there would be no representative authorized to speak on behalf of Rec Park here today. Uh, and despite repeated requests our office has made uh, for an authorized representative to appear. So before we proceed, I just wanna check to see whether um, Rec Park has changed its mind and sent anyone here today or not. So is there anyone here who is authorized to speak on behalf of the Rec Park Department or online, Madam Clerk? Okay. I'm not seeing a representative. So I want to make very clear that their failure to appear here is completely unacceptable, is disrespectful to the Tenderloin community, 
This would never happen in any other neighborhood in San Francisco. Let's be honest, or most, most any other neighborhood. To make a plan of this kind, refuse to meet with the community at a community meeting, and then when a, when a hearing is occurring, at which you have the opportunity to speak to the public, not showing up. Uh, so we'll talk more about this later. Um, colleagues, I just want to um, plant the seed for what will probably be at a future meeting, but um, if this continues, it would be my intention to exercise the subpoena power of this committee uh, to subpoena uh, the Rec Park Department uh, and the entity that has been working closely with Rec Park on this, the Civic Center uh, Community Benefits District, um, for any further hearings to make sure their attendance is compelled and required under law. It is, saddens me that, uh, that we may have to exercise that power to get a city-funded department that has literally dozens of people who could come and present this plan to the public. Uh, to have them unwilling to do so is, is completely, completely unacceptable. Um, in their absence, though, I'm still glad that we are having this hearing because I want to hear from the public because people deserve to have their voice heard around these plans that impact their community. Uh, in contrast, apparently, to the Rec Park Department, um, we value transparency and public participation. This is a point I've made. I've bent over backwards for months with Rec Park to urge them to hold public meetings. They have not done so. Um, it is really uh, important that the public have this first meaningful opportunity to weigh in on this project. I only wish you could do that with a more formal description of the project and questions answered before, but apparently that is not going to be the case. Um, it is, I just can't emphasize enough that I am uh, really shocked and not sure I've seen much like this uh, since being chair of uh, GAO to have a department unwilling to come in, defend their own plan that they cooked up in secret without the participation with the community that is literally costing almost $2 million that risks the, the death of the farmer's market if we don't do this right. Um, and has managed to infuriate thousands of San Franciscans who are patrons of this market and who support, whether they go there or not, who support this beloved market. Um, so before turning to public comment, and I don't know if he's here, uh, oh, I believe he is, I did want to just uh, give the floor to uh, Steve Pulliam, the head of the, the farmer's market, um, and uh, just for any uh, updates that you want to share, uh, and I know you've been in communication uh, with the committee. Uh, can't thank you enough for your leadership of the farmer's market, for your um, courage in speaking up on behalf of the vendors and patrons of the farmer's market. Um, and um, I, I, it is my hope that after this hearing, that this, this resolution goes to the board where the entire board of supervisors, I hope, will show uh, the same support for the farmer's market that I know uh, President Peskin uh, and I are, are committed to. Um, but the floor is yours, Mr. Pulliam, if, if you want to share any updates, uh, particularly on how it's going 
uh, from your perspective and what kind of commitments uh, have been made from Rec Park or what kind of commitments from the city uh, are still needed to ensure the, uh, the, the success of the farmer's market. Okay, thank you, Supervisor Preston. Um, I wasn't quite prepared to speak today, but I did take down some notes this morning, tried to attend the uh, Rec and Park Commission meeting there. Um, so I didn't have any time to really go over the words I wanted to say, but I will try to um, quickly, without taking up too much of your time, tell you sort of what's going on down there. Um, uh, well, down there as if the market's going on now, but um, on the market days on Fulton Plaza. Now, I did want to say that, to uh, preface that by saying that, um, you know, to an outsider, um, to people that don't really know how the market operates, it might seem like it's not a big deal. You guys are moving across the street. And I know that is the narrative that uh, Rec and Park has tried to portray. Hey, you guys are just moving across the street, not a big deal. But I will say that it is a big deal for us, um, especially those farmers. Um, that space is quite a bit different than the space we had on UN Plaza. And I know that they claim that it's more space, but it's not. We've had to move a lot of our vendors off the plaza, across into City um, Hall Plaza. Um, our hot food vendors have had to go over there. We have some vendors on the sidewalks over there that seems a little unsafe to me, seems to be a little bit of a hazard, but that's what we've had to do in order to create the space within the plaza to operate. We've also had to move 20 vehicles um, off that plaza that are parked along um, Larkin and Hyde Streets and, and other areas. Um, so um, it's quite challenging, some things that we are working through. Um, but I just wanted to um, be clear that it, it's not easy for those farmers. And uh, the main issue that we had was those farmers are away from their trucks. Um, those farmers that don't have their trucks with them, their job's a lot harder than it used to be. And I'd like to emphasize that those farmers already have 17 out 18 hour long days. Um, any change to that, any uh, thing making that more difficult is really, uh, it's, uh, it's a travesty. <laughs> um, I don't know if anybody knows what an 18 hour day feels like, but that's what they do on their market days. Um, and uh, we've made that much more difficult for them, probably added a couple hours to that day and they have to get there earlier now and leave later. Um, well, actually, we've reduced our hours to accommodate that to uh, one hour less than we were before to help them at least a little bit in that respect. Um, I wanted to emphasize one of the issues that we had when we were protesting this move um, that we wrote to Rec and Park was that we were moving away from BART, um, that it was gonna be harder for our customers to get to us, and even though we still have, uh, we're getting a turnout of customers, one thing that we've noticed is that the farther you get away from BART, those vendors and farmers are having more issues. If you talk to the ones that are on the west, uh, I guess that's east side, I'm sorry, I forget my sides, but the, the side of the plaza that's closest to BART, those farmers are doing pretty good. Some of them, you, if you talk to one side of those guys, one side of that statue, they'll tell you, hey, you know, not too bad. And, and I realize, and they realize, that if their sales are fine, they can get over the hardship of setting up 
breaking down and restocking from their trucks all day long. They can get over that if their sales are fine. Now, if you go to the other side of the statue, those guys are struggling a little bit. Their sales are not so good. And if you go across the street to City Hall Plaza, those hot food vendors over there on Sundays, they have lost 75% of their sales. I'm going to do whatever I can to change the layout to help them um, to improve that because I can't. Each one of those businesses, it's personal to me. It's certainly personal to them. I don't want to lose one vendor, and we now have uh, several vendors that I'm worried about losing, and I've got to do everything in my power to make sure that we don't lose them. Um, I will say that the customer feedback in the market, just so people know, um, has been pretty positive. People are saying, oh, it feels open. Um, I sort of like the feel of it. Um, feel like I can move around a little bit better. I've heard all these kinds of comments. And I, and I do appreciate that, and maybe we can build off that to keep people coming to the market. Um, but I don't ever want them to forget that those farmers still are struggling to set up and operate during the day. Even if they feel good, those farmers uh, do not feel good unless we get their sales up. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, one of the things that I want to make sure that, I would, uh, that I've been pushing uh, with Reckon Park and the CBD is I really wanted to have those benchmarks available for us because that was how they sold the project to us. And I would say, I would say that uh, um, they didn't exactly sell it to us because we protested against it anyway. But one of the things that they did tell us was that if the project proves unsuccessful in six months, we will, as Phil said, we're stocking the bricks, we'll put those bricks back and you can go right back on the plaza. Um, I'm not naive enough to think that that was the truth um, and if you look at the bricks that they're pulling up right now on the plaza, you'll see that they're pulverizing those bricks. Those bricks will never be put back on the plaza. Um, but I do think that there, is, there should be some benchmarks to prove if that project is not successful and we are not happy in our new location, that we should be able to move back. They have refused to um, give any of those benchmarks. Um, I think that um, we need to know whether or not that project is successful, the skate park and the games, um, if it's drawing the people that it's supposed to. And it's obviously important to me if our farmers and our other vendors are doing well enough to stay in that location, right? Um, and to me, that, that should have been a, a given that we would check that. And six months seemed like a reasonable time, and as Supervisor Preston said, he moved it to two years in the last time uh, we had a discussion with him. Um, but either way, I certainly I believe we could look at it within six months and at least get a feel for where we're at. Um, another uh, thing that we need is we still don't have a permit to operate on that plaza. Um, I think we have a temporary permit, and it hasn't really been shared with me, so I don't really know exactly what we have there. Um, but one, there was a contract of sorts submitted to me by the CBD the other day, which seemed to appear that the CBD is permitted to be on that plaza and is just allowing us 
to operate on the plaza. And that's, I find that very problematic. The contract that was submitted to me basically seemed like um, it appears that the CBD would be running the market if I signed that, um, that um, uh, contract. And um, that's something that certainly doesn't feel good and I think it would be uh, um, not very um, smart for us to agree to such a, an agreement, um, as I've told them. And it had things such as their ability to shut down the market if they had some other event going on whenever they liked, or they wanted to control how our farmers' booths looked. Um, a lot of issues that I won't even go into the details because I don't think that we should be answering to the CBD. We've been operating independently on UN Plaza for 42 years. There was a time when the city tried to take over that market and the community fought back and prevented that. I don't know if, how many of you remember that. Um, that was even before my time. Um, but anyway, we've proven that we can operate on that plaza. Um, I don't think that they can hurt us in the new plaza even. I think that our farmers are strong enough and resilient enough that we will make it work one way or the other. Um, but uh, it, it has certainly been disrespectful to just move us off that plaza and just sort of throw us off to the side. Um, so yes, I would love a permit to operate in that space so that we know that they're not able to just kick us out whenever they want, um, which I'm not, with all of the, the deceitful tactics and stuff that I've experienced since this is going on, I'm not sure what their ultimate plan is, but it does worry um, the market that what their long-term plan is for us. Another thing that I uh, spoke about um, that I'm just telling you some of our needs, um, that surface, that, asp that black asphalt is super hot. We have a long market day, and even though it might not seem like a big deal, that produce does not last um, nine hours now on that hot surface. And one thing is I want is them to uh, put some kind of reflective coating or something on that uh, hot asphalt to um, make it um, workable for a farmer's market. You can walk over there and feel the heat uh, rising from that asphalt. Um, and, oh, customer parking was one of the advantages. I think I've feel, well, uh, Reckon Park um, gave us a list of maybe 10 advantages for moving across the street to Fulton Plaza. The only legitimate one to me was the customer parking. And I will say that that's been, we've worked out some kinks. Um, we are um, trying to promote that customer parking, hoping that that will bring more people to the market. But currently we're getting about 15 people a day um, using that customer parking. So it hasn't been the boon to business that they promised. I think that's about all I have to thank, say. Thank yes. you, and, and I just, I, I know there are a lot of detailed requests that need attention, and, and you've done a great job of laying those out in communications with our office, with President Peskin. Um, please feel free to uh, forward that to the committee clerk if you want that uploaded as part of the record. 
of this hearing, laying out what did. There are some things that have been done, some of the commitments that have been fulfilled, others have not, and I think you've highlighted a number of those, and I just wanna echo some of the things we wanted to hear today was the length of the pilot, right? Is, you know, can we get back to this six month Certainly. promise or not? Um, getting some stability for the market through the permit to operate as you've described, because right now, just so the public and, and committee members know, you are very much, a, what do you have, a 30-day notice or 60-day notice? Like what, what, what is guaranteed in terms of your, your, it's probably even less. It was month it, well, to month. Well, now it, it's was, even, it was a two-month temporary permit that we have, that we are operating on now. Got it. So, we've uh, gone so that is almost a month through that. So I guess we have right. about a month. So getting clarity from, uh, from Rec Park or the applicable city departments around uh, how we get more stability so that the farmer's market can actually plan here. Um, support for promotion marketing website. I think there have been general promises made, but, but nothing specific or, or in writing. Uh, the surface issue that you raised around the, the Fulton Plaza surface, which I know is a big issue for farmers because the, the uh, on UM Plaza you had the bricks which didn't reflect up and absorb heat in the same yep. way so you're again going to get spoilage and other problems uh, for after hours on the on the market so that needs to be addressed uh, storage for equipment um, and any compensation around uh, impacts and losses uh, that folks are incur incurring. I think those are among the top things that you've surfaced, you know, both here today and in writing. Uh, but if you, like I said, if you want to forward us uh, a copy of that to the, to the committee clerk, we can. I will try to keep that um, out there um, yeah. so everyone can see. Uh, Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Chair, and um, I wish that is a unique uh, situation where, you know, Rec Park, uh, Recreation and Park Department, or this administration, sometimes this type, this type of top-down decision without community outreach is uh, only unique in this situation, but I, 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 given what the Richmond has time and time again experienced, I don't think that this is actually unique. I think that is problematic of that about how city government is or like not working. <laughs> like this is how why people are frustrated with us um, because this is not. Uh, you know, decisions um, being decided uh, behind closed doors. It's not transparent. There's no accountability to the process. Con consistently, that city department is trying to find ways to dodge uh, questions from this board of supervisors and from the public. I think that this, this whole thing that's like clearly um, just on full display and it's, it's shameful. Um, what I do agree with you, like, even though there's a narrative out there somehow, it's like, oh, you're just moving three steps from where you were. That, I agree with you, is like completely uh, uh, just illogical. Not that I have done any event organizing or, or uh, like farmer's market like the way you have, but just have been working with farmer's market um, in the Richmond and as well as even just an autumn moon festival layout of the booth, distance between the booths, who goes where and first. It's a lot of work, and let alone to just have such a short time to just decide it. I do have a question. So in the event, say, for example, that UN Plaza, uh, UN Plaza uh, open back up to you, uh, and will there be a consideration to sort of, and because of the customer uh, feedback that you receive that it's positive, 
does it even make sense and is it reasonable to you that and, and I like that you're like I'm you're still a fighter because what you're trying to do is you're going to figure out the layout is there a possibility that will be an expansion in the event it opens back to you for the expansion of the market does that even make sense an expansion of the market uh, across to, the photo yeah, yeah. Um, certainly um, I even um, I proposed uh, a compromise with uh, Rec and Park at one point to use part of UN Plaza and part of Fulton Plaza. That way my farmers could keep their trucks yeah. um, and um, uh, it wouldn't be such a distance from each other where the customers wouldn't, uh, would not be able to find us. Um, he rejected that proposal. Um, he said well, that- Sorry, uh, I don't mean to why? interrupt. Yeah. Um, he said that um, ping pong tables and chess tables were going in that area of UN Plaza that I wanted to use, that in closest to Hyde Street, and that it wasn't going to work. That's what he told me. And so, but then those are temporary structure. They're not permanent structure, though. I don't know what kind of structures, structures they're going Sorry, to be, to be honest apologies. with you, because they this haven't. He never submitted any. I've asked for designs to know what exactly they were doing, but I have no idea what they're doing over there. So during this process, no layout of the design of that space were ever shared? No. The first time I saw a layout was when a customer told me it was in the newspaper that they had submitted plans to the planning department. And it's the layout that I've seen in the paper is still the only one I've ever seen. Yeah, this is very disappointing. And I do wish that if only that we just have like all take a step back and just be able to negotiate the layout, perhaps an expansion for the market. This could actually have been a win-win um, project for everyone. Um, I will, I just, you know, think that this is, we, I, I'm definitely, first of all, I'm definitely in support of today's resolution and moving this forward and making sure that we continue to support uh, the market. Um, and I also want to publicly urge, even though they're not present, publicly urge uh, Recreation and Park Department to come to the table um, to do a couple of things. One is to not only um, share the layout uh, in a transparent fashion, but also to actually work with you on the layout and with the potential expansion for the long haul. And most definitely, I am not. I am not in supportive uh, of having, you, having the market to actually be granted a permit through the benefit district, but to actually independently have your own permit. Because I do believe that once that happens, you, you, it, it, you're no longer in control of your vendors and, and the potential again shut down just whenever they have events, that is problematic for me as well. And most importantly, I know that when uh, Chair Preston and Board President Peskin, when they introduced uh, this resolution, that I, you know, just their frustration and I wanna just also again publicly concur with that frustration is that this space has long been a food desert and that people in need of affordable food, and food is really a basic health care, and taking this away and the option away is just, it just um, unacceptable, and that um, this, is, this is just not okay. And I think that we will do whatever we can beyond this uh, resolution to figure out a way, um, including potentially just um, whatever it is that we can do with recreation and parks 
commission. Uh, I think that we, we have a new commissioner coming through uh, as an appointment. We should most definitely question them about you know decision-making process uh, with the commission uh, and the city department, uh, how, how these come about. Thank you so much for Thank being here. Thank you for here. your support. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Mr. Pulliam. And let's go ahead, uh, Madam Clerk, and open this item up for public comment. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for this item? Please line up along the curtain wall to your right. Remote public call in members, please dial star three now to be added to the speaker queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. As a reminder for each speaker, each speaker will have two minutes. If you are here in the chamber, the lectern has a visual timer that will start at green and turn to yellow with a 30 second chime and will finally turn red with a loud chime to mark that that is the end of your time. For those calling in, please listen for the clerk to alert you at the end of your two minutes. Also, just so we can get through everyone, please remember to use your spirit fingers if you're in support or thumbs down if you're not in support. Any vocal support may delay our proceedings. Welcome, please proceed. First speaker, welcome. Good morning, supervisors and um, Supervisor Preston and Supervisor Peskin for taking this um, resolution on. Uh, first, I'd like to bring attention that this project has limited, limited community outreach. There has been limited community for those with English as a second language. This area is non-ADA compliant, and there is no budget for the project itself, estimated between one and two million dollars, uh, nor a budget for the project fails to restore this area to its origin. There is no concrete lease for the farmers. Why are we allowing a CBD or park and rec to dictate what is being done to a people's UN plaza? It's United Nations Plaza. There are so many needs that you're taking away from the community which does not make logical sense. So I question the integrity and the intent of this project. The ask of the farmers must be met, as well as providing community with a sustainable food, sustainable food source and not at, at the expense of those providing and growing our food. Let me tell you what a food desert is. In food deserts, healthy food like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, dairy, peas, beans, meat, and fish are often expensive and unattainable. The lack of access to healthy foods in these communities translates to health disparities and high rates of chronic disease. Let me tell you some of the issues facing the, prob uh, the farmers after pre-COVID, or post-COVID, excuse me. The depletion of valuable sources necessary to grow sustainable food and selling locations, farmland degradation, a disconnect of public perspective and demographics, and a, a conversion of land for urban development. I urge you to reconsider this project due to the food despair and the economic loss for our community and our farmers. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Uh, good afternoon, Supervisors. Uh, David Elliott Lewis, co-chair Tenderloin People's Congress. My comments today are informed by the members of our Tenderloin People's Congress and by my own extensive interviews with the actual farmers going multiple times to the farmers market before they moved and after they moved to see how, how this change has affected them. And I've also had extensive conversations with Director Steve 
Pullman, Pullman. And this is, this is what I've learned. I've learned that this move has created a true hardship on the farmers, especially those on the, I guess, the west side of the Pioneer statue. That's the side facing closest to City Hall. Um, also for the farmers that can no longer bring their trucks up to unload. They have to, they have to hand cart everything in. And they're putting in 16 to 18 hour days, and then they have to can carry in all their produce because they can no longer bring their truck up to their stand. This is a major hardship. Uh, there are customers coming to the old site at UN Plaza now seeing fences and very limited signage. There's been blind customers that cannot read the signage about the new location and are totally lost. And I've heard several reports from blind customers that are really distressed. We need navigators at UN Plaza to, to help send people to the new location. We need better signage and we need crossing guards because uh, Hyde Street is very busy, and it's a hazard for senior, disabled, or people who can't walk quickly. Um, regarding the resolution, we support it. Our Tenderloin People's Congress support it. We would ask, though, that there be a pause in this whole process until there's true and adequate community feedback and process. Reckon Park has not really consulted with the community. They need to do so now. And before there's, and there needs to be a right of return after six months if sales are continued to stay down. Otherwise, the market will fail. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. Next speaker, please. My name is V. I work with two groups, the Tenderloin People's Congress as well as TNDC's Food Policy Council. Uh, in addition to what the previous two speakers said, I just want to remind you all that today is United Nations International Day of Peace. The UN Charter was signed in our fair city on June 26, 1945 in the War Memorial Veterans Building. This is a historic place. I'm flabbergasted that they be allowed to take our bricks and pulverize them. They should not be allowed to do that. This has world significance. And I'm also very upset about the removal of those giant yucca plants and aloe vera plants right around the statues, you know, uh, what used to be the early days pioneer statue. So it's not just the fact that they're destroying a histor historical place of world significance, world and global significance, especially right now during a time when, you know, we're entering another kind of Cold War because of what's happening with the Ukraine and the Russia conflict. And the clock is getting closer and closer to you know, the thermonuclear war. So we desperately need to remind people that we have to work together and we have to support our farmers because feeding people is definitely an essential business because all of us need to eat. So anyways, thank you for listening. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Good afternoon, Supervisors. My name is Wendy. I'm a member of the public. I want to uh, talk about my experience. Most of my working life, I have worked in retail. Okay. When you go into a store, the public areas um, have a front-facing or customer-facing area. Okay, 
most people do not see the backside of it. Okay, I have worked on the backside of it. The trucks for the farmers, okay, that is their backside, okay. And if uh, the logistics to be able to move product from the back to the front, okay, the way it is now, uh, it takes more time, it takes more uh, energy to replenish the, the front of the store, so to speak. The farmer's market, each of the um, farmers, they are, they are small businesses. Uh, they are mainly people of color, okay? This is the essence of what is called farm to table. There is no middleman, okay? And if this was a brick and mortar location, they would be considered a legacy business. And I wanna say that the asphalt is not climate friendly. Um, The community that lives around here did not ask for ping pong or skate park uh, to be here, okay? The farmer's market is a fixture in my life. It's something that I count on to be there all the time. That is now in danger. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Thank you, supervisors. My name is Adele Framer. I'm a resident of the Haight, now District 8. Uh, I've been a happy patron of the farmer's market on UN Plaza for more than 20 years, like thousands of other San Francisco voters, as well as the 20,000 CalFresh customers per year. I'm very concerned about the health of the farmer's market. There are signs that the relocation of Fulton Plaza has been very rough for them. The new, the new location is out of the way, too small and logistically difficult. The farmers, who are micro-businesses, cannot afford much in the way of financial losses. The farmer's market transformed UN Plaza every market day. If it fails, I urge the committee to consider how this will affect food equity in the heart of San Francisco. How will this make our city look? Overall, the UN Plaza project is poorly planned. I can find no formal plans, studies, or projected demographics or usage patterns for the skate park, etc. We don't know quite what the etc. is. It never went before the Rec and Park Board. The planning department was told it was a temporary installation. Exactly how temporary is this slipshod pilot project? And how could this be our city's best idea for UN Plaza? How could it be our best idea? The night market organized by Supervisor Engardia was a raging success. People come out for food. Why not have food in UN Plaza seven days a week? I urge all supervisors to support this resolution and get this thing straightened out. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Supervisor. I'm nervous because this is the first time I'm here to no do problem. public. No problem, pull that mic up so we can hear you better. Yeah. Thank you. I, uh, I am uh, Jalal, food justice leader. Um, I am here to be say, uh, this is uh, farmer's market is uh, helpful to be um, help people to be get uh, healthy food and uh, uh, cheap 
food and organic. It's mostly organic. So uh, just uh, that's us food justice leader. I have message from my mom. My mom, 88 years. She go to the every Sunday and Wednesday to the market. This is message for you to be listening because she has a difficulty uh, to be go to the farmer's market because before she get one hour to go there and back by the walker, now she, she, uh, uh, it take more than two hours because she need to cross two block more, two streets dangerous, and the um, market is very crowded she cannot find the seller what did she know for 30 years when she go there. She uh, can't find the product because uh, she don't know, she don't organizing where this is uh, seller, where is the food. So I want to uh, give this is um, from here. She's not agreed to be moved. This is because she has difficult to go there. And also, I am, as a food justice, I am not agree. As a leader in my community, Middle Eastern, we are not agree to move this. Is. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. My name is Joran Shidei. I support this resolution. I am a disabled low-income SRO tenant who lives near UN Plaza and one of very few vegans in the neighborhood who needs fresh fruits and veggies. And I was only recently gotten off the sidelines on this issue. And I am hopping fucking mad that the hardest city farmers market was moved out of UN Plaza. There are a lot of food equity, wind hazard, disability, privatization, farmer hardships, and other issues that have many have spoken on and will speak on as well. But this is a deeper issue of government as rotten as asphalt-cooked produce, where pilled, drunk-on-power Ginsburg thinks he can do whatever the fuck he wants, and London Greed can just issue unilateral addicts just to fuck over supervisors she doesn't like. And of course, since the mayor picks the wrecking park commissioners, there's no true oversights. Maybe progressives were fucking brave. They would introduce charter amendment to get rid of this bullshit-ass strong mayor system and stupid decisions like moving the uh, farmer's market out of UN Plaza. In fact, if this move to suddenly relocate the farmer's market had happened in most other California cities, you wouldn't have to introduce a resolution like this urging the local wrecking wreck King parks to do the right things. You could directly hold the city manager accountable for non-gauging key stakeholders, and someone would get fired. I should be resting from fighting Nazis and turfs all this week, but I'm here because the city doesn't give a shit about equity and food justice. This resolution, while I support it, shouldn't even be necessary. Fuck wrecking parks and fuck this busted-ass city government. I yield my time. Fuck you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, um, my name is Ariana. I work for TNDC, and I also care for the Tenderloin People's Garden, which sits across from the Asian Art Museum. I work at Rooftop Gardens in the Tenderloin, and we're growing food for tenants and community members in the Tenderloin. And I say this because this work has given me a glimpse of how hard farming is, let alone the growing of it, the distribution, the processing, the transportation, the marketing. Um, I can only imagine what this relocation has felt like for our farmers. And um, it's also made me think a lot about what public safety 
means because public safety doesn't feel like decision-making behind closed doors. It doesn't feel like building a privatized skate park. Um, it doesn't feel like forcing farmers to work under conditions that they didn't consent to. Um, and I urge you to listen to the concerns of both the people who are here, the farmers who couldn't be here, um, and like create more, create systems for us to really transparently talk about what food equity looks like and what localized food systems do to create public safety because that is what public safety means. It's feeding people, it's allowing farmers to farm in ways that serve them. Um, it's, not, it's not building a silly skate park, so thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Uh, good afternoon, supervisors. Uh, thanks for your time today. My name's Kevin. Um, I'm a resident of Lower Knob Hill, and currently I'm on staff at TNDC Community Organizing, and I'm concerned about, yeah, um, the dislocation of the farmer's market. I support this resolution wholeheartedly. Um, you know, the absolute least we can do is to make sure that the farmers are successful in this location to provide all the resources that you know, uh, Steve has outlined as well as um, take into full consideration, yeah, what it's going to look like to measure out success of uh, uh, the safety for um, the space at uh, Civic Center and then the, the success ultimately of the farmer's market at this new location. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just know how important is this community. I've worked in the Tenderloin uh, nonprofit um, world for two years now, and uh, residents here absolutely rely on that market for um, food, whether it be, you know, the EBT $30 market match that's so crucial for so many families, um, or just the, the fresh food, the, the farmers, the interactions with the farmers that they have, it's, you know, they're also very invaluable. And so, um, yeah, I fully support this resolution. I think the city should sit with, you know, the level of disrespect that you've shown the farmers by not even considering giving them the option of staying when presenting this plan. It's absolutely crazy to me, so I think people need to know that, you know, this was a unilateral decision by the city and completely, completely unacceptable, and I support the resolution um, going forward, so thanks. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Uh, hello, thank you for your time. Austin Dalmaso with TNDC Healthy Retail. Um, I don't know what else I can say that a lot of people haven't already said other than this market, it's a community institution, it's also a public health institution. It's the only place in the Tenderloin, really, that people can reliably get access to fresh, healthy local produce. Uh, nourishes their mind, body, spirit, soul. If they can be full, they can, they can move for better. Um, San Francisco, time and time again, talks about you know, all these ills that affect the Tenderloin, affect the Civic Center, affect the plaza. It's good for press, right? It's good for you know, photographs. It's good for you know, re-elections and all these things. But this is good for people. Uh, it really does not need to be treated as a zero-sum game. I think one of the major points is you know they said they would put the bricks back i don't know why you would even say something like that uh, i have a brick on my desk in my office like they're not going back um from just a base fundamental lie like that you know how much is stacked on top of that you know whatever allegories be gone um and it's really important i think to realize this doesn't need to be a zero-sum game uh there's this land grab that's happening um I don't know if Parks and Rec have ever met a skater, but they're not gonna pay for a skate park. It's just gonna be there and it's gonna sit and it's gonna degrade and it's gonna be a failure and we all see it coming. 
And there's so much we can do now to stop that. Um, you know, I, I urge you strongly, pass this resolution, get your colleagues to pass it, and give it some teeth. You know, make something actionable out of it moving forward. The farmer's markets are going to be okay because the farmers are the most resilient people you'll find anywhere. You know, they do some of the hardest work there is. You know, I don't think that's the entire issue. I think the issue is the larger picture of what's actually happening here. Um, and I mean, it's no better selling point than give people fresh produce. It's how I spend my day. My entire job is trying to get people access to this. And this is just one more piece of bullshit we have to go through to make that happen. And it shouldn't have to be. Um, yeah, thank you for your time. Please make this happen. Thank you. Next speaker. Hello, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Jaime Villoria. I'm a resident and an organizer in the Tenderloin. Um, there is a lot of shadiness to this plan. Um, I looked at Phil Ginsburg's um, response, and he mentioned a two-year robust community engagement for the Civic Center Public Realm Plan. And I was actually brought into the neighborhood in order to do the engagement for that. And I believe the planning department did an excellent job doing that. And if you look at the plan, none of it shows the farmer's market outside of Yen Plaza. In fact, they actually put it front and center of all their renderings. And so Bill Ginsburg re referring to that as one of the reasons they move the farmer's market is disingenuous. And the way this went with not a lot of public input is, again, another addition to that shadiness. Um, so I do support this resolution. Um, my echo has been said we should do more for our farmers. Um, you know, referring to the night market, I've been seeing that on my timeline all over social media over the weekend, and that's great. Um, you know, they got 50K, lots of support, lots of publicity, um, and yet the farmer's market, the heart of the city's farmer market is not getting the same love. And I think this move is really sending it to its doom. We talk about doom loop all the time, and yet we don't do anything to what exists. And to quote one of my residents in the Tenderloin, her name is Deborah Copes, why always take something good away from us? Does the city have contempt for the Tenderloin community? Because every time we have some good, it's taken away. Union Plaza represents an important the importance of the United Nations. It was a way to mend and address grievances and create unity, that, but what's happening right now is causing division. It's not a good symbol to show to the world when APEC comes in. It's privatization of public lands, public property, and now we're putting a skate park there and charge people to use it. Skaters are in front of the public library, not a UN Plaza. Thank you for your time. Thank you, next speaker, please. Good afternoon, supervisors. My name is Eric Arguello. I'm the advocacy manager for GLIDE under the Center for Social Justice, and GLIDE is in support of this resolution. GLIDE's mission uh, is to build empathy, transform lives, and spread radical inclusivity. GLIDE's daily free uh, meals program was founded as a weekly community potluck in 1969. Over 50 years later, we now serve over 2,000 meals a day, 364 days per year. As a champion for food equity, we stand with the farmers and community members asking for the support that they need to continue providing the tenderloin with healthy, fresh, and affordable food. We are concerned that if the farmers' concerns are not addressed or heard, this vulnerable resource will leave or be diminished, affecting, the, affecting thousands of low-income community members in the tenderloin and the city. Please support this resolution. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Uh, first of all, thank you, Supervisor Preston, for sponsoring this resolution. 
uh, demanding for accountability from the Reckon Park in regards to the UN Plaza uh, Redevelopment Plan. My name is Lorenzo, this time I'm a local resident. Uh, I'm here to express my support for this resolution and to call for a pause in the construction of a skate park at the United Nations Civic Center Plaza. So uh, Reckon Park's decision-making process around the historic uh, plaza is deeply troubling. It needs more transparency and genuine community involvement consistent with the city's goal of achieving equity. It appears that this uh, redevelopment plan is driven by entirely profit motive. So the question would be, who is actually funding this? And who will profit from this? So we need more clarity as to the budget and the source of funds. The United Nations Plaza must remain a people's plaza, not an exclusive space for skaters driven by profit. So uh, we are asking for a pause in any construction at UN Plaza to allow the board of supervisors, the community stakeholders, farmers, market vendors, customers to engage in a thorough activation planning process. Uh, so I'm also asking uh, the city to provide support to the vendors while they are in the six months of pilot. We know a while ago that uh, farmers market are, uh, vendors are already losing money, uh, 25 to uh, 50%. Uh, so please support this resolution and, and call upon Reckon Park and the mayor to listen to the demand for a pause in the construction and create an inclusive transparent and equitable process in planning this project. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next speaker. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, supervisors. My name is John McCormick. I'm the program manager for Healthy Retail at TNEC. And I also work closely with Tenderloin residents around food justice issues through our Tenderloin Food Policy Council. And I, we talk a lot about food deserts, but the but what the Tenderloin really suffers from is food apartheid, meaning that it's been historically and systematically denied access to healthy food. And so when we talk about the market uh, farmers losing money at the new location, and we're talking about the farmers being forced into a new location, we're talking about the historic and like the ongoing systematic denial of healthy food to help to low-income residents in the Tenderloin. When farmers are losing money, and they're, they're uh, yeah, when the farmers are losing money in this new location, we're putting the whole market at risk. We're putting the whole viability of the market at risk from continuing. And we're, what that's doing is that it's essentially putting folks in the tenderloin at risk of not being able to access healthy food yet again, right? So this is not the first time this has happened. And it can, as it, this, this process continues, the his, historic process of denying people access to healthy food, again, continues through this process. And that's very disturbing. That's very worrisome uh, when we look at what's happened through the last year and the loss of pandemic EBT, what's happened um, you know, to so many different cuts have, have come to Tenderloin folks in terms of being able to access healthy food. And so this is not something that, um, something that I'm very worried about. And so I, I really urge us to adopt this resolution and think about the folks that are gonna be the most impacted and, and really make sure that we don't continue to um, push forward historic processes that have denied people access to healthy food. Thank you. Thank you, next speaker. Good afternoon, supervisors, and thank you for this resolution. I'll urge you to 
uh, not just pass it, but be starting to think about what are the next steps. Um, you've heard a lot about the customers, the customers that couldn't be here because they're working. <laughs> but I would also like to speak to the site, um, if I could have the overhead. Uh, the uh, UN Plaza is a protected historic site as part of the San Francisco Civic Center Historic District, and it does not deserve the treatment it's getting. Uh, this, this medallion, as part of the UN Plaza remodel back in, in 75, it's not clear to me what has happened to it. I think it's gone, but I don't know. Here's, here's what, uh, a photo of what I took yesterday. You can see the care, careful removal of the bricks. Yeah, yeah definitely care. <laughs> um, we, you will obviously be concerned about the 20,000 customers from the TL that uh, have food subsidies. But let me tell you, there's thousands of San Franciscans from different parts of town that come to that market and pay with cash or credit card. And there's no record of how many customers there are. But I think it's safe to say there's about 30,000 customers in San Francisco that frequent that market. And think about also the, the farmers. They've been planning, they have to plan their crops, their vegetables, you know, six months to a year ahead. The fruit trees are an investment of decades. And on a, very, a couple of weeks notice, they were asked to put their entire plans their entire crop production at risk because they may not be able to sell it. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, supervisors. I'm Curtis Bradford, and I am a mid-market resident. I live on Market Street near the farmer's market. Um, I work in the neighborhood, um, and I shop there. Um, so I, I just want to say, first of all, uh, I'm really concerned about the farmer's market. After 42 years of providing for our community, moving it seems very risky to me. Our community is gravely concerned also about the lack of transparency. The Rec and Park Department hasn't provided us with any tangible budget or definitive plans for what they actually are going to do with the space or what it's going to look like. Some polished public relations slide deck they shared with us, but no detailed plans or justifications for why this needs to happen. Additionally, our public commons, a space cherished by residents, is under threat. The new plans indicate a shift towards monetization of our common spaces, such as the skate park, which has been a free space for all, <laughs> all this time. And our farmers, the very essence of the market, have already felt losses. And for me, that's not just a, a loss or a decline. That should be an alarm signaling a potential market extinction. And I appreciate Steve's confidence in his vendors and in their ability to find a way to make it work. But I'm, I'm very concerned that we're actually facing a genuine doom loop as vendors begin to leave or drop out and we'll see a spiraling down of the, of the market. And no plans by the city or even comments on how they would address um, this if, if a crisis like this happens. How are they going to respond and ensure that it, it continues? And the new location provides all kinds of other challenges around shielding from wind, overcrowding, potential towing of cars of our low-income residents. <laughs> just to accommodate this change, as well as other logistical issues like access to restrooms, the heat of the asphalt, degrading the uh, produce, 
and it jeopardizes the accessibility for our disabled and senior patrons, making it harder for them to access the produce. And the vendor hardships abound from having to carry the produce too far, you know, and the impact to the community, which the relies so heavily on this. So, and giving Thank the you. CCBD any authority over the farmer's market. Thank you. You're completely insane. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hello, everybody. My name is Trader Jeff. I'm a disabled senior that lives in South of Market. And I've been going to the farmer's market since I came to San Francisco. And that's one of the reasons I came to San Francisco, to get healthy and get all these fresh fruits and veggies. So whatever you guys can do, man, to make sure it's, it keeps on going, please. I mean, people want to eat healthy and we want to live in a healthy community. And the farmer's market is a gem. It's a beautiful gem for everybody, not just for people in the Tenderloin, but for people all over the city. I beseech you, it, it's shameful the way it's been destroyed and, and, and degraded. So I beseech you to please try and save it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Are there any other speakers here in the chamber before we go to our call-in line? Seeing no additional speakers here in the chamber, we currently have six in the call-in that have called in with four in the speaker queue. If you intend to speak to this item, please dial star three now. May we please have the first caller. Good afternoon, committee members. My name is Eliana Binger, and I'm the policy manager for GLIDE. Thank you for holding this hearing. We're deeply concerned by the relocation of the heart of the city farmer's market from UM Plaza to Folsom Plaza. Healthy, culturally appropriate, and affordable food should be available to all San Franciscans. Heart of the city is a vital source of nutrition for many people in the Tenderloin and surrounding areas, as you heard today. The Tenderloin lacks any full-service grocery stores, and many residents depend on the market for fresh and affordable fruits and vegetables. Over 20,000 people use CalFresh at the market in the past 12 months. Despite the critical role the farmer's market plays, this relocation has happened without clear communication and community involvement, which has left farmer and community concerns unaddressed. Furthermore, the relocation and subsequent risk to the market comes when San Franciscans are facing rising rates of food insecurity. Over 100,000 residents across 73,000 San Francisco households have been impacted by the end of emergency allotments of CalFresh, which provided additional food assistance through the first three years of the COVID-19 pandemic. This relocation also comes at a difficult time for farmers who are still recovering from reduced sales during the pandemic. Increasing access to high-quality, healthy, and affordable food in the Tenderloin and across San Francisco is at the core of GLIDE's mission, and we stand with the farmers and community members asking for the support that they need to continue to provide healthy, fresh, and affordable food. Thank you. Thank you for your comments today. Next caller. Hi, this is Adam from D6, living in Selma, and I... You know, I appreciate the interest in um, transparency, but I don't appreciate the lack of um, or the disdain expressed towards skateboarders. I mean, we look at this, the farmer's market is, as has um, been said, moving one street over, and there are potentially things that could be done to improve it, like blocking up Hyde Street from through traffic during the, um, during the farmer's market. But the fact of the matter is, um, UM Plaza is not what it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago when um, 
I first came to San Francisco, the fountain was open. It was a great place to hang out. You could go there, eat, talk. And yes, skateboarders were around. Um, skateboarding has always been an active part of life in San Francisco, even though it's been made illegal, it's limited. You, know, it's, you can't even legally skateboard on any city street at any time. Um, yes, skateboarders have to go wherever they can. Having a nice open space, even a smallish one in the um, mid-market area would be amazing because there isn't anything like that downtown on this side of Van Ness. There are one or two small, quote-unquote, skate parks buried underneath overpasses. But we, I mean, we saw from the Hillbomb, you know, skating is very, very much in demand in San Francisco. It always has, it always will be. Having a space where people can hang out and be active is a good thing. Getting UM Plaza back to a spot, a community gathering spot, would be a good thing. And if that means moving the farmer's market one street over, we can adapt. San Francisco has always been resilient. Thank you. Thank you for your comments today. May we please have the next speaker? Hi, um, Leilani from District 1. Um, first of all, I'm so sad to hear this for our seniors and low-income San Franciscans that they are afraid of losing access to food, to food that sustains them. And then I also agree that um, we do need more skate parks throughout the city, but there should have been a conversation between the communities to find out where they best could be. Um, just doing this and tearing out the bricks and not having like a full conversation, I mean, it, how could you not hear and listen to the pain of our seniors and people who are at low income who are looking for healthy food to eat are worried uh, about finding access. And you say it's just going across the street, but that information was not very easeable. It wasn't very um, accessible for everybody in the community to know. And so I think that when things like this are done, we have to think about everybody in the community, not just one demographic. We agree, skateboarders do need a place and to me, where was the conversation about it being in all, where could it be in the 11 districts? And um, was there a survey sent out? Um, where could I have seen that? You know, um, but most important, our seniors need to be fed. If you go across the city, you see long senior lines waiting for food, for canned food, um, for prep meal. They need access to fresh food, and that should also be a priority as a San Franciscan. Uh, we should not be pitting the two against each other. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. May we please have the next caller? Hello, I'm Lisa from District 5, and I support uh, Supervisor Preston's and Peskin's resolution. This is a real shame and an outrage, quite honestly, that Park and Rec's takeover of public space, historic space at UN Plaza happened without community input from residents, from the farmers, from small business people, and from the customers. I feel it is really bad faith by Rec the Parks. You talk about a lack of oversight and accountability 
we need metrics to measure this um, before any future movement occurs. I Hello, speaker, did we lose you? Paused your time. I will note that there's one minute and 15 seconds left for that speaker. Mr. Kawana, if we're able to reconnect with them, please forward them after the next speaker. May we please have the next speaker? Park enact a scheme like this without public input or engagement. How did this happen? How and why can Park and Rec not be here today at this democratic and public hearing to explain and answer for their plan? Food equity and food justice and equal access for all San Franciscans, including elders and low-income people, really needs, these are primary things that we hold sacred. Why can we build skate parks and Ferris wheels but not support and nurture the most essential farmer's market in San Francisco? Please, let's preserve our, our farmer's market. Thank you very much. Thank you for your comments. And we are looking to see if there are any other callers. Chair, that was our last caller. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Chair. Um, my apologies. I didn't uh, make it clear earlier that I would like to be added as a co-sponsor. Thank you. Noted. Thank you very much for the co-sponsorship. Um, and I, I want to thank all the members of the public who, um, who spoke about this um, and just maybe offer some, some final thoughts on this. Um, First, as you know, as the body here that oversees and looks at lawsuits and settlements, which we'll be doing next on our agenda, um, I am concerned as chair of this committee about what risks the uh, Rec Park Department has created for the city um, in terms of potential litigation uh, regarding how this was carried out. Um, Second, I, I just want to thank all the folks who came out again and like really emphasize the point that has been made around the importance of this market and the manner in which no effort was made to try to plan in an inclusive way to allow the farmer's market to stay. There, there are a hundred things that could have been done on UM Plaza to activate it seven days a week. Why not even convene one single meeting or conversation to put our heads together and come up with what one of the public commenters called a win-win? There are so many win-wins here because everyone wanted a more positively activated space. It, it, it is, you know, I, I have been asking for months for the alternatives that would allow, that would allow some of the activation elements that Rec Park wants to create there but also allow the farmer's market to be there. Was told there was no such option, that that's impossible. And that's what the farmer's market was told. 
The only thing Rec Park has ever said in their defense is we came to the farmer's market early on and said, hey, do you want to do seven days a week? And the farmer's market says, no, we can't do seven days a week because I'm sure for their farmers and vendors and in terms of the customer base and so forth uh, that they couldn't successfully function there seven days a week. What I don't think they ever offered was, hey, we have $2 million extra sitting in Park Rec's budget. Mr. Pulliam, can you help us figure out how to activate UM Plaza seven days a week for the next six months? And Supervisor Press and the Tenderloin People's Congress and others, can we all get together, take this $2 million that we apparently have extra sitting in Rec Park, take that $2 million and start activating markets and as some of the speakers said, some of the different things, 50,000 was spent on a night market over in the sunset that many of my colleagues were, were at. Ideas like that for seven day a week activation, been all for it. Add chess tables so that the folks who were displaced from Powell and Market have somewhere to play chess years later on UM Plaza, great idea. Like th this is, th there are, as I said, a hundred ways this space could have been activated in an inclusive way and instead it was shut down with no consent of the community, no participation of the community, and in a way that at this point I can only characterize as a hostile takeover of UN Plaza. Because there's a way to do this that's inclusive and this is not it. I also want to note that this is not about whether you're for or against skate parks. And I want to reiterate that Rec Park has worked with communities to activate skate parks elsewhere in my district, and it did not look like this. The Waller Street Skate Park over at Stanion's Edge, the entire Stanion Edge development, which was done in conjunction with the Haight-Ashbury Neighborhood Council, with community meeting after community meeting, with clear plans on how it was going to be done, with the involvement of the skate community speaking in favor of it and done well, and I give Rec Park credit for that. Go, come out and visit the hate and, the, skate, and the, the Waller Street Skate Park, right? They know how to do this right, and we as a city know how to do this right. So this is not even a case of, of ignorance, and, that, and that's what troubles me the most, is I have approached this from the first time that Mr. Ginsburg, General Manager Ginsburg, spoke of it, assuming everyone was engaged in good faith on and activation of this space. Um, and from what I've seen and what I've heard today and what I've, I've learned every step of the way, um, I can no longer make that assumption that everyone is operating in good faith on this activation. So I'm saddened that this resolution is necessary. I do wanna make very clear to the folks I represent in the Tenderloin and the broader community that supports this farmer's market and has relied on it for years and all the vendors um, that I will not stand by quietly and allow a process to continue that threatens the future of the farmer's market, threatens food access in the community, has such a lack of transparency and continues not to make commitments in writing to the community and to ensure the success of the farmer's market. So um, I appreciate and, and hope to have um, support from all my colleagues on this resolution, but let's be very clear, this resolution is a first step demanding some 
um, transparency, some metrics, some clarity about these plans. Um, it is not the end of this discussion. Um, and so I look forward to talking with, uh, with all of you about our next steps uh, to try to change uh, what is happening out there and to fight for and preserve uh, this amazing farmer's market. So thank you all again, and unless there are further comments or questions, not seeing anyone on the roster, I want to make a motion to send the resolution to the full board uh, with a positive recommendation. Madam Clerk, please call the roll. Thank you, and also confirming sponsorship by co-sponsorship by Supervisor Chan on the motion to recommend this to the full board with a positive recommendation. Vice Chair Stephanie. Aye. Stephanie, aye. Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. Thank you, everyone. Um, Madam Clerk, please call items uh, 3 through 31. Thank you. Items 3 through 21 are 11 ordinances and 8 resolutions authorizing and approving various settlements of lawsuits and unlitigated claims. Members of the public who are viewing remotely and would like to provide public comment on items 3 to 1 should call the phone number scrolling across their screen. When prompted, enter the meeting ID, then press pound twice. If you have not done so already, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you. Ma'am, I'll send someone up there to be with you in just a moment, Wendy. Thank you. Have we opened public comment on the? Public comment is now open, yes. If you'd like to make public comment on this item and you are in the chamber, please line up along the curtain wall. Seeing no in-person comment, we'll go to our call-in line where we have one listener with zero in the queue. Thank you. Public comment on these items is now closed. Um, and uh, colleagues, unless uh, we have any last-minute questions on these items, uh, I know that we've all probably been in touch with city attorney uh, on the many litigation matters, but I'm not aware of, um, I, I don't have any items that I need to review in closed session. I'd be prepared to, uh, to support these uh, settlements. Um, and uh, seeing nodding colleagues, um, let's uh, go ahead and uh, move to, uh, to forward these items with recommendation of the full board. Okay, confirming that there is no need to go into closed session and also forwarding items 3 through 21 to the full board with a positive recommendation. Vice Chair Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. Uh, any further business before the committee? There's no additional business before the committee. Thank you. We're adjourned. Thank you.